I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to part nine, the last part of Clear Shakespeare Hamlet. We're almost there. So grab your copy of Hamlet, open to the last scene, Act 5, Scene 2, and we'll begin. Just a minute before the scene starts, we had seen Hamlet furiously storm out of the graveyard after his fight with Laertes, and the king sent Horatio after Hamlet to calm him down a little bit. And that's really what we see at the beginning of this scene. It's a much calmer Hamlet, accompanied by Horatio, and wherever Horatio is, there shall exposition follow. So in this case, instead of giving the exposition, Horatio is receiving it. And he's evidently pretty far into this exposition because his first line is, So much for this, sir. We don't know exactly what the this is. Maybe he gave him an update on the Norwegian army's march to Poland? Maybe not. But Shakespeare, like any good writer, knows that you start the scene at the most exciting part because he goes immediately to, Now shall you see the other. In other words, the other news. Or maybe we should just say the interesting news. And before he starts, he says to Horatio, You do remember all the circumstance? Circumstance being like the details or the situation we were in last? And Horatio says, remember it, my lord. You mean the part where you killed that guy and then got banished to England and then got captured by pirates? Yeah, I remember that. In some ways, the most similar thing to this in the play is when the ghost tells Hamlet, remember me. And then Hamlet's first line after the ghost leaves is, remember thee? Like you think so, ghost dad? So regardless, Hamlet starts his story up while he's still on the boat with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern on his way to England before any pirates show up. Sir, in my heart, there was a kind of fighting that would not let me sleep. I like that image of a battle going on in Hamlet's heart. It's actually a nice metaphor for the entire play. So he's lying awake in the middle of the night thinking. He goes on, Methought I lay worse than the mutants in the Bilbos. So methought is more than just I thought. It means it seemed to me like. I lay worse than the mutants. Mutants are mutineers, people who tried to take over a boat. In the Bilbos. No, this is not Hobbit related. Bilbos are shackles. So when you mutiny on a ship, they don't just toss you overboard. They shackle you up and maybe they put you below deck for the rest of the voyage. And then when you get home, you're tried for mutiny and then they execute you. So Hamlet knows that he's on his way to England where something probably very bad is going to happen. And his situation feels worse than if he were a mutineer sitting in shackles. He feels trapped, in other words. So what did he do? He goes on, rashly, and praise be rashness for it. Let us know our indiscretion sometimes serves us well when our deep plots do pall. So notice this odd thing how rashly is the last word left in its line. It's a pretty non-traditional way to start a new thought. And fittingly, he doesn't even get to start it because he interrupts himself. So he's going to say rashly, I did this. But instead he says rashly and then interrupts himself. And praise be rashness for it. Like it's a good thing I was so rash. Let us know. In other words, let us recognize or acknowledge that our indiscretion sometimes serves us well. Indiscretion being like recklessness or even bad behavior. It sometimes does really good work for us when our deep plots do pall. Deep here meaning cunning or complicated plots. You know, the kind that the king and Polonius like to use. When they pall. Now we get some nice alliteration from plots and pall. But what pall means here is something like fail or go wrong. Literally, a pall is like a black cloth you put over a coffin. So sometimes you hear about like a pall descending over a room. It usually means like a black cloud or general dissatisfaction. And here Shakespeare uses it as a verb. It's interesting to hear Hamlet here for rashness and against plotting. Sort of weird to hear this consummate thinker praising the virtues of not thinking too much. And he goes on, And that should learn us there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how we will. So he's getting really off topic. Remember, he started with rashly and was going to say what happened, but now he's spinning away. So the success of rashness should learn us, which ironically means teach us, that there's a divinity that shapes our ends. Ends here means outcomes. 
And I think it still makes sense to us today to say that there's something that shapes our outcomes, but that's not exactly what this image is. Obviously, it's a very famous line. We still use it occasionally today, but I don't think we really tend to go very in-depth with it because it's almost an image from sculpture or carving. Shapes here means like finishes off or polishes. Because when you finish a sculpture in stone or in wood, you still have to go in and finish all the details of it. Polish it off so it looks smooth and beautiful. And see how that ends. Rough hew them how we will. In other words, no matter what rough shape we carve out at the beginning of our plans. So no matter what shape we start that sculpture in, there's a divinity that takes over and shapes the outcomes. Again, famous line, but you've got to get deeper into this image to figure out what exactly it's talking about. And Horatio agrees. He says that is most certain. So finally, Hamlet's going to get to the end of the sentence he began, what he actually did. So he goes, Up from my cabin, my sea gown scarfed about me, in the dark groped I to find out them, had my desire, fingered their packet, and in fine withdrew to my own room again, making so bold, my fears forgetting manners, to unseal their grand commission, where I found Horatio, O royal knavery, an exact command, larded with many several sorts of reasons, importing Denmark's health and England's too, with how such bugs and goblins in my life, that on the supervise, no leisure baited, no not to stay the grinding of the axe, my head should be struck off. Quite a run-on sentence, right? We'll start from the beginning. So after this long digression, he gets back to up from my cabin, a sort of anyway, getting back to my story. So he comes up from his cabin in the ship, my sea gown scarfed about me. A sea gown is like a cape you wear at sea so you don't get all wet, but it's an awesome verb, scarfed. Not like scarfed down a cheeseburger, but wrapped like a scarf around him. In the dark, groped I to find out them. So he gropes around in the dark to find out them. He's not literally looking for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Find out them means find out what they were planning. Had my desire, in other words, got what he wanted, fingered their packet, which means stole their papers. But of course, it sure does sound sexual, doesn't it? In fact, this whole section is oddly sexual. You get the word groped, you get the word desire, you get the phrase fingered their packet. He's just trying to steal some papers from a bag here, but it's weirdly intimate. Then again, this is a very intimate betrayal that they're running against him, and then actually he's thinking about running against them. So it's kind of appropriate to use the word fingered, as though I held it in my fingers. But enough about Hamlet's odd word choice. He goes on, and in fine, in other words, finally, at last, withdrew to my own room again, went back into my own room where I came from. Making so bold, in other words, being so bold or acting so boldly, and then in parentheses, my fears forgetting manners. So my fears for myself making me forget my normal manners. I made so bold to unseal their grand commission. A commission, remember, is a government message. It's what the king of Denmark sent to the king of England. And there's something a little mocking in that grand commission. Notice, by the way, that almost every new thought we've seen in this speech so far starts in the middle of a verse line, not at the beginning where a lot of thoughts usually start. It gives this speech a sense of falling over on itself, that he's rushing to tell Horatio what he wants to say. There's this term called enjambment, where a thought continues from the end of one line through the beginning of the next line without any pause. And there's a lot of that in this speech. Anyway, he goes on. He opens their grand commission, where I found Horatio, and then another parenthetical, oh, royal knavery. Knavery is like trickery or even treachery. But because this is from the king, it's royal knavery. So he found an exact command, larded with many several sorts of reasons. Remember the word larded from Ophelia's song? It means covered over, but the exact image is when you put lard or bacon on top of a roast to baste it with fat. Almost as though the simple message of Claudius's letter, which is kill Hamlet for me please, is fattened up and decorated with many several sorts of reasons. Several sorts just meaning different kinds, but of course you get those s sounds to make it sound fancier. And what kind of reasons? Reasons importing Denmark's health and England's too. Importing meaning concerning or even vital. And Denmark and England's health can be the countries, but it's also probably the kings, the king of Denmark and the king of England. 
So it's vital for their health that this go forward. Along with what else? With ho, such bugs and goblins in my life. I really enjoy this phrasing, bugs and goblins. Bugs here is something like boogeymen, and in my life means if I remain alive. So Hamlet's making fun of the king's justifications for killing him. It's like when a politician wants to scare you about something, they have to make stuff up around it. These boogeymen and goblins that'll happen if you vote for this particular legislation, for example. Like if you pass this tax, babies will be eaten, that kind of thing. Those are the bugs and goblins that Claudius is promising if Hamlet lives. He goes on, that on the supervised, no leisure baited, Supervised isn't our modern sense of, like, looking after a class full of kindergartners. It means the looking over, or literally reading, this letter. So when you read it, no leisure baited, no time lost. So leaving no time after you read it. No, not to stay the grinding of the axe. No, not even to wait for the sharpening of the axe to cut his head off. Don't even wait that long. My head should be struck off. In other words, chopped off. It's almost as though Claudius wants the king to read the letter, immediately put the letter down, go grab an axe from next to his chair, and personally cut off Hamlet's head. And notice that last line, my head should be struck off, is all single syllables, to make it as simple and direct as possible, because this is really the bombshell for Horatio. And Horatio is shocked, because he jumps right on Hamlet's verse line to finish it. He says, is possible? And in fact, it is possible. Hamlet says, here's the commission. He still has the original letter with him. We're going to find out why in a second. He says, read it at more leisure. In other words, you can read it over when you have more time. Notice we get that same word, no leisure baited, and then here it shows up again, read it at more leisure. And why doesn't he have time to read it now? Because Hamlet says, but wilt thou hear how I did proceed? Do you want to hear how I went forward? And Horatio again jumps in to finish his line, I beseech you, I beg you to tell me how. Well, fortunately, Hamlet loves telling stories like this. He goes on, being thus benetted round with villainies, or I could make a prologue to my brains, they had begun the play. I love this verb, benetted round. You can see the image so clearly. It literally means surrounded by a net, as though he's a wild animal in the forest, and there's hunters with nets all around him on every side. So benetted round with villainies. Villainies are like the evil plans of villains. Or I could make a prologue to my brains. Or being another word here for before, sort of like that word air, E-R-E. So before I could even make a prologue, we've seen this before. The prologue in a play is someone who comes out at the beginning and lays out all the circumstances before any of the actors come out. But who are the actors here? His brains. So before he could lay out all the circumstances of the plot against him to his own mind, they, in other words, the brains, had begun the play. It's like a prologue that comes on stage and is about to talk, and then the actors come on and do the play anyway. And what's the play in this case? It's Hamlet's plan to deal with these villainies against him. So his brain almost got ahead of him. And he goes right to work. He says, I sat me down, devised a new commission, wrote it fair. So he sat down and devised, in other words, thought up, a new commission, a new message, wrote it fair. Not like fair to all parties, but more like the word beautiful, because this is an official commission, so it has to look right. It has to be in this appropriately formal handwriting, or the King of England's going to know this isn't really from the King of Denmark. And you can hear how methodical he is in this language. I sat me down, devised a new commission, wrote it fair, these little choppy bits. And then he has a little digression for a moment. He says, I once did hold it, as our statists do, a baseness to write fair, and labored much how to forget that learning. But, sir, now it did me yeoman's service. So I once did hold it, hold it means considered it, as our statists do. Statists are statesmen, you know, politically important people. A baseness to write fair. Baseness meaning like a low-class quality, to be able to write with this pretty-looking handwriting, and labored much how to forget that learning. Like, I worked really hard to forget how to write this way. But, sir, now it did me yeoman's service. Yeoman's service is an expression we still use today. A yeoman's like a worker. So here it has the sense of like good, honest, hardworking service. So this knowledge did really good work for him. He goes on. Wilt thou know the effect of what I wrote? Do you want to know the effect? Which here means like the contents or the drift of what I wrote. And Horatio, still eager, finishes his line with, I, good my lord, 
In other words, my good Lord. Like, yeah, I want to hear it. Just keep going. This is actually a pretty smart trick on Shakespeare's part. If you just had to listen to one long, long monologue, you'd get bored. But by introducing these little bits of Horatio listening, it breaks it up. It's almost like he's asking us, do you want to hear more of it? And we have to say, yeah, yeah, keep going. So what was in this letter? An earnest conjuration from the king. As England was his faithful tributary, as love between them like the palm might flourish, as peace should still her wheaten garland wear, and stand a comma between their amities, and many such like as is of great charge, that on the view and knowing of these contents, without debatement further, more or less, he should the bearers put to sudden death, not striving time allowed. Another good run-on sentence, but it really gives you a sense of the propulsion of this. He has to make sure Horatio knows this all before anything else happens. So what did Hamlet write in his commission? An earnest conjuration from the king. Conjuration is like a formal request or appeal, but I think conjuration is an intentionally fancy word choice on his part, because that's the kind of language these commissions use. And he goes on with even more of that language. He has this list. As England was his faithful tributary. These are all the reasons that Hamlet thinks up for why the king of England should do what Claudius asks. As England was his faithful tributary, since the king of England was his faithful tributary, a tributary is a person or country that pays tribute to a conquering country. Remember the neglected tribute that they're going to England to ask for? Well, England is the tributary to Denmark. And also, since love between them like the palm might flourish. Palm is a palm tree, and might here just means should, since if they carry out this order, love between England and Denmark is going to flourish. Now you may ask, what do people in England and Denmark know about palm trees? Well, it's actually referencing a line from the Bible, from the book of Psalms. There's this line that the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. So it's a pretty direct reference there. And not only that, as peace should still her wheaten garland wear, in the hopes that peace should still, should always wear her wheaten garland. What is this exactly? Well, at this time, brides would often wear wreaths made of wheat. It's a reference to the goddess of the harvest, who obviously also symbolized fertility and plenty and all those good things, which you want both a bride and, say, a field of wheat to have. So you're hoping for peace to be like a bride. In other words, fruitful, plentiful, not tending towards war. And stand a comma between their amities. This is a pretty ridiculous image. But think of what a comma does in a sentence. It just makes you pause briefly. And their amities means they're getting along. So it's a little difficult to figure out what is standing a comma. It might be peace itself. It might just be that there should stand a comma between their amities, that there should be only a brief space between their getting along with each other, or that peace itself is that brief space. But regardless, what you get is this list of three or four as-is, and this very froofy over-the-top language, wheat and garland and stand a comma. Hamlet's essentially parodying the way that these people talk and write, and he admits that, he says, and many such like as-is of great charge. Charge here means importance, so many such like, many similar very important phrases beginning with the word as. There's also maybe a little bit of a pun here. Asses could sound like asses, as in donkeys. And of great charge could mean that they're loaded down with bags. So comparing this commission to an overloaded donkey. But he gets past this list of why exactly England should do what the letter asks to say what exactly they should do. That on the view and knowing of these contents, view meaning reading over and knowing the contents of the letter, without debatement further, more or less, Debatement here is just another word for discussion. And that further, more or less phrase could be another one of those parodies of official language. But basically this means without any further discussion after you read it, he should the bearers put to sudden death, which is exactly what the original letter called for except for killing Hamlet. And what does the new letter say? He should the bearers put to sudden death. He should the people who carry this letter put to sudden death. Not shriving time allowed. Not even shriving time, which means time to confess and be absolved from their sins before they die. Remember, this is exactly what happened to Hamlet's father, that he was killed without being able to confess his sins and be absolved by a priest before he died. This is also the reason why Hamlet didn't kill Claudius. 
And think about it. Who are the bearers of this letter? It's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Hamlet just sent them off to die without even giving them time to confess their sins and be absolved. That is cold, buddy. And Horatio jumps in again on his line with a complication. He says, how was this sealed? Because remember, official letters had to have the seal of the king to guarantee that no one had opened it along the way. You know, it was this very elaborate block with lots of wax and stamps and stuff. But good news, Hamlet says, why even in that was heaven ordinant? Ordinant comes from the word ordain. It means heaven was in control or directing the events. It's that divinity shaping our ends thing again. He says, I had my father's signet in my purse, which was the model of that Danish seal. A signet is a special ring that the king uses to seal wax letters. It's so he doesn't have to carry around the big giant one all the time, but only he's allowed to use it. But it marks it as being from the king himself. So Hamlet just happened to have his father's old signet ring in my purse, in other words, in his money bag, which was the model of that Danish seal. Model being like a smaller copy of the official Danish seal that was used on the other letter. So what did he do with it? Folded the writ up in the form of the other, subscribed it, gave it the impression, placed it safely, the changeling never known. So he folded the writ up, folded up the document in the form of the other, exactly the same way the other one was, because some of these diplomatic packets were folded like 17 times, subscribed it, in other words, signed it as Claudius, gave it the impression, which is the impression that the seal makes in the wax, placed it safely, the changeling never known. A changeling is an exact copy that's switched in. This comes from the myth of the time that fairies would sometimes steal human babies and replace them with exact copies that were actually just fairies. You have a changeling in A Midsummer Night's Dream, for example. So in this case, it isn't a baby, it's a letter. So this changeling was never known. In other words, it was never discovered to be fake or even found missing. So it was a perfect switch. And he says, now the next day was our sea fight, and what to this was sequent thou knowest already. So it was a good thing he made the switch when he did, because the morning after was when they got in the fight with the pirate. And what to this was sequent, sequent as in sequel, what followed this, you know already, because he got his letter from the pirate. And notice that it ends on a short line, thou knowest already. It seems to indicate that there's some silence at the end of this long, incredible story about how he sent Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to their deaths and saved his own life. And it just hits with a thud and there's a silence. And then Horatio is the first one to speak. He says, so Guildenstern and Rosencrantz go to it. He doesn't say, oh, great thing you're alive, way to save your life. He says, Guildenstern and Rosencrantz go to it. In other words, they go to their fates or even to their deaths. Horatio's a good guy. He's in some ways very like Hamlet at the beginning of this play, before he became a killer. And all he can think of is, you just sent your oldest friends in the world off to die. But Hamlet justifies himself. He says, why, man, they did make love to this employment. Make love, not in our modern sense. It originally meant to woo or court someone, like you were trying to get them to go out with you or marry you. So they're pursuing this employment, this job or purpose they have, to take this letter for Claudius, like it's a woman they're in love with. It really makes that image concrete. They were so eager to pursue it, like they wanted to marry this job. Because again, Hamlet has to justify this horrible thing he's just done. But he says, they are not near my conscience. That's a really cold line. Like, I don't feel any pangs of conscience for sending them off. They wanted to do this. And he backs that up. He says, their defeat does by their own insinuation grow. Defeat not being just losing, It literally means destruction. It does by their own insinuation grow. Insinuation is like ingratiating or their fawning behavior towards important people. So their destruction grows out of their desire to be important, to be close to powerful people. This is not my fault, he's saying. But look, it's an incredible jump to see this guy become what is essentially a cold-blooded killer. This is not the Hamlet who started off the play. Remember, conscience doth make cowards of us all? Now Rosencrantz and Guildenstern aren't near his conscience. He's not a coward anymore. He's a killer. And he goes on, "'Tis dangerous when the baser nature comes between the pass and fell incensed points of mighty opposites." So it's dangerous when the baser nature, baser meaning like inferior or even lower class, 
So when an inferior person comes between the pass, a pass is a fencing term, it's a lunge, and fell in sensed points. Fell in sensed means savagely angry, and points are literally the sword points of a fencing sword, of mighty opposites. Opposites here is like opponents. So when you have two great, important, higher class people like Hamlet and Claudius, and they're engaged in this long metaphorical sword match, what Rosencrantz and Guildenstern did was they came between them. And obviously what happens is they got stabbed. It was dangerous. But still, this is a really cold image. Were these important guys having this battle to the death, and these two nobodies stepped in the mill, and yeah, they got hurt. Like, nobody, you actually wrote a letter that sent them to their execution. And Horatio is probably a little weirded out by this, but then he starts thinking more, and he thinks, why, what a king is this? Remember, he didn't know that Claudius tried to have Hamlet killed, and it's slowly sinking into him, what kind of king would do that? And this is what Hamlet really wants to hear. He wants him back on his side. He says, yeah, does it not, thinks thee, stand me now upon... He that hath killed my king and whored my mother, popped in between the election and my hopes, thrown out his angle for my proper life, and with such cousinage, is it not perfect conscience to quit him with this arm? So he gets really worked up here. He says, does it not, thinks thee? Like, don't you think it stands me now upon? Stand me now upon means obligates me now. Like, don't the king's actions against me obligate me to? And then he stops himself again. He has another diversion. He that hath killed my king, he's talking about Claudius here, and whored my mother. Not killed my father, my king. And that choice of verb is really interesting. Whored my mother? I mean, it literally means turned her into a whore or even whored her out to other people. Here it probably means something like corrupted her through sex. Remember it was just a few scenes ago in that scene with the Norwegian army where he talked about himself as having a father killed and a mother stained, and now he's going right after Claudius. What else has Claudius done? Popped in between the election and my hopes. This is something we have heard very little of from Hamlet so far in this play, but it's amazing to see it here. It's political ambition. Now, obviously, kings aren't elected by a vote of the people, but they were very much chosen by the court, even if it was just a formality, because you needed all your lords behind you. So it's the election to the throne. So he popped in between the election and my hopes, in other words, Hamlet's hopes to become the king. Because really, you can make a case that Hamlet should have become king as soon as his father died. And it was only through his uncle's political electioneering, his pulling favors in the court, that Hamlet didn't immediately become king. I loved that verb, popped in. As though Hamlet was walking up to be elected, and Claudius just popped right in. It also sounds awesome. And what else has he done? Thrown out his angle for my proper life. You ever heard of talking about a fisherman as an angler? That's what this is. An angle is a fishing line with a baited hook on it. And what has Claudius been trying to catch? My proper life. Proper here means my very own life. And with such cousinage. Cousinage is deception. So after he builds up this damning case against Claudius, he concludes, Is not perfect conscience to quit him with this arm? There's that word conscience again. Here it means something like defensible behavior. Like, can't I in good conscience quit him with this arm? Quit comes from the word requite. It literally means to pay back. In this case, kill. So shouldn't it be totally fine for me to kill him with my own hand? And he concludes, and it's not to be damned to let this canker of our nature come in further evil? Like, isn't it a sin to let this canker of our nature? Canker is where we get the word cancer. It's almost a way of saying like a festering sore or even a tumor. The other use you'll sometimes see of the word canker is of a canker worm, which is like a little caterpillar that eats flower buds up from the inside. But it's an incredibly alive way to describe Claudius. And our nature here could mean the entire human race. To let this canker of our nature come in further evil. Come in here means commit further evil. So it would be a sin to leave him alive to do more bad things like this. And God, guys, this speech could not be more different from the to be or not to be speech if it tried. This is a justification for killing on the basis of conscience. This is such a different person than the one we knew at the beginning of the play. In some ways, this is what this revenge task that he got from the ghost has done to him. It's changed him utterly. 
He's had to get down in the dirt with these plotters and schemers and in some ways become one of them. So he's sort of asking Horatio if it's okay for him to kill the king, but Horatio says back to him, it must be shortly known to him from England what is the issue of the business there. So very soon it's going to be reported to the king from England what the issue, the end result of the business there is. In other words, he's going to find out about the switch of the packets. He's going to find out that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are executed. And Hamlet picks up on that. It must be shortly known. He says, it will be short. Like, yeah, I don't have much time. But he says, the interim is mine. You know, that short period of time before the report comes to the king belongs to me. And then he has this little observation on top of that. He says, and a man's life is no more than to say one. Almost like he's saying, and anyway, an entire human life is no more, is no longer than the time it takes to count to one. So our lives are incredibly short. I can deal with this very short amount of time. But this new cold killer Hamlet has one regret. He says, But I am very sorry, good Horatio, that to Laertes I forgot myself. For by the image of my cause I see the portraiture of his. So he admits that he's sorry that he forgot himself. In other words, he lost his temper to Laertes. For by the image of my cause, in other words, right alongside the image of my cause, in other words, revenge for his father's death, I see the portraiture of his. Portraiture can mean a reflection or just a sort of similar pattern of his, of his cause. Hamlet's been trying to revenge his dead father on the person who killed him, and that's all Laertes wants to do. He wants to revenge his dead father on the person who killed him. It's a really uncomfortable thing for Hamlet that he's become a hypocrite in some ways. How can he be angry at Laertes if Laertes wants exactly the same thing that he does? If anything, Laertes has an even better cause because he also has a crazy dead sister. And he concludes, I'll court his favors which means I'll try to win over his good wishes. He's going to try to become friends with Laertes again as best he can. But he says, But sure, the bravery of his grief did put me into a towering passion. But sure, surely, the bravery of his grief, not bravery in our sense, but like the -the over-the-top display of his grief did put me into a towering passion. Passion here just means powerful emotion or even a fit of rage. And he describes it as towering, almost like those mountains they were talking about. He just lost his temper. That one thing just got to him for some reason. But then Horatio interrupts him because he hears someone coming. He says, peace, who comes here? Peace means be quiet. And who's coming here? It's Osric. And thus begins a pretty bizarre scene. We've talked a lot in this play about the critiques of courtier society, about this cloud of hangers-on that go around with power. Polonius and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern being the chief examples of this. These are suck-ups, people who use fancy language in an attempt to seem more sophisticated than they really are, and to seem more upper class than they really are, and to get close to the powerful. Well, we're about to meet the champion of that. And it's oddly situated in the play. At this point, you kind of just want to get to the showdown. And instead, we get this bizarre comic scene about how ridiculous courtiers are. And Osric starts off with, Your lordship is right. Welcome back to Denmark. And as soon as he calls him your lordship, I think you know what we have in store. He's right welcome, right meaning very welcome, back to Denmark. And immediately Hamlet knows that this is someone angling for position. And he gives his usual reply, I humbly thank you, sir. Maybe even amplifying that humbly part a little bit to match the courtier speak. And he turns to Horatio and says, does know this waterfly? A waterfly is probably a reference to a dragonfly or any kind of busy fly that's always just skipping over the surface of the water. This is sort of like when he buzzed at Polonius. It's just a character who's always hanging around and always hovering. And Horatio responds, no, my good lord. Notice, by the way, we're back in prose again. Hamlet, still talking to Horatio, says, thy state is the more gracious, for tis a vice to know him. So Hamlet evidently does know him. He says, thy state, in other words, Horatio's state, is the more gracious. Gracious here meaning graced or blessed. And why is he blessed not to know him? For tis a vice to know him. A vice is the opposite of a grace. It's literally an immoral act or a character flaw, as though it's your fault if you actually do know him. He goes on, he hath much land and fertile. So he owns a lot of very fertile land, which is why he's a courtier. 
He goes on, Let a beast be lord of beasts, and his crib shall stand at the king's mess. So let a beast be lord of beasts means if an animal owns a lot of animals. So imagine there was this really rich pig who owned all the other animals. Then his crib shall stand at the king's mess. A crib is a feeding trough, like where you slop hogs. This one shall stand at the king's mess. A mess is another name for the banquet table. So if there were a rich enough animal, he would eat with the king. So he's implying that Osric is a useless animal, but because he owns all this fertile land, he gets to be near the king. He goes on, "'Tis a chuff, but, as I say, spacious in the possession of dirt." A chuff is a noisy kind of bird, so it's a way to say he's a chatterer or a talker. just goes on and on. But, as I say, spacious in the possession of dirt. It's a great phrase. In other words, he possesses a lot of land. But instead of land, Hamlet says dirt. So again, it doesn't matter what kind of person you are, if you own a lot of land or animals, you get to be close to the king. It's another criticism of courtiers, where who they are on the inside matters much less than who they seem to be on the outside. Their actions and their talk and their worldly possessions end up being much more important than who they actually are inside. So this has been a pretty long private talk between Hamlet and Horatio, and Osric is waiting patiently, and he says, Sweet lord, if your lordship were at leisure, I should impart a thing to you from his majesty. So sweet lord, your lordship. Again, these suck-up phrases. So if you're at leisure, in other words, if you aren't busy, I should impart, I will communicate a thing to you from his majesty, from the king. But impart is a much fancier word than he needs to use. You could just say tell. And Hamlet goes into full mocking mode, and he mirrors him. He says, I will receive it, sir, with all diligence of spirit. I will receive it, the king's message, with all diligence of spirit. Diligence is attentiveness. Like, I'll listen as hard as I can. But again, he uses a word that's much too big. And just as Osric's about to speak, he says, Put your bonnet to his right use. Tis for the head. Bonnet is just a fancier way to say hat. So evidently, Osric is carrying his hat. Sometimes in productions, you'll see him actually using his hat as a fan. But this is Hamlet's secret trick to mess with courtiers. They're always constantly thinking about the proper way to behave. And here, Hamlet, who, as the prince, is the final arbiter of what's proper and right, is telling him, you're using it wrong. It allows him to mess with Osric almost infinitely. But Osric doesn't want to. He says, I thank your lordship. It is very hot. He's trying to avoid it whenever possible, but he has to say, I thank your lordship. But Hamlet's not going to fall for that. He says, no, believe me, tis very cold. The wind is northerly. Northerly meaning it's coming from the north, which is where the cold comes from. And Osric, since he wants to please important people, has no choice. He has to say, it is indifferent cold, my lord, indeed. Indifferent meaning somewhat or kind of moderately cold. He has to pretend like he's cold, even though he's just said he's hot. This is almost exactly like that moment that Hamlet had with Polonius, where Hamlet got him to agree with him about what animal the clouds looked like, and he could change Polonius's answer just on his own whims. Because if you have someone who's going to agree with whatever you say, no matter how ridiculous it is, they're basically your puppet. So he's gotten Osric to admit that it's cold, but then he messes with him one more time. He says, but yet methinks it is very sultry and hot for my complexion. Actually, now that you mention it, methinks, it seems to me, it's very sultry. Sultry is how they said humid. So it's really humid and hot for my complexion. Not necessarily the complexion of his face, but it's like his overall constitution. Actually, now that you mention it, I do feel kind of hot and humid. And Osric is glad to hear this, but he also has to throw himself into agreement with whatever Hamlet says. He says, exceedingly, my lord, it is very sultry, as twere, I cannot tell how. So exceedingly, it's very hot, and it is very sultry, it's very humid, as twere, as if it were which seems to indicate that he's about to try a metaphor, but he's actually not smart enough to come up with a good metaphor. So he ends with, I cannot tell how. I can't, like, I can't describe it to you. As though his brain short circuits. But he really wants to get back to the reason he came here in the first place. And he probably knows exactly what Hamlet's doing to him. So he stops it as best he can. He says, But, my lord, his majesty bade me signify to you that he has laid a great wager on your head. Sir, this is the matter. So the king bade me signify, he asked me to communicate to you, again, with fancier words than necessary, that he has laid a great wager on your head. He's made a bet on you. 
And he starts to describe it to him. Sir, this is the matter. In other words, this is the substance of the bet. But Hamlet interrupts him. He says, I beseech you, remember. Beseech means I beg you. And what is he beseeching him to do? To put his hat on. And this is killing Osric because he's hot. He doesn't want to put this hat on. But he can't disagree with someone this important. He says, nay, good my lord, for mine ease in good faith. He's begging with him. So no, my good lord, for mine ease, for my comfort. Let me not wear it in good faith. I swear by my good faith. So he's trying desperately to keep his hat off. And he goes back to his message. He says, Sir, here is newly come to court Laertes. Believe me, an absolute gentleman, full of most excellent differences, a very soft society and great showing. So Laertes came to court, and believe me, he is an absolute gentleman. Gentleman means a nobleman, but absolute means complete or fully formed, as though he's really the picture of what you'd want in a nobleman, full of most excellent differences. And differences are things that differentiate you from everyone else. It's a way of saying great qualities. Though, of course, as a courtier, it's a much fancier word that he needs to use. And what else is Laertes? A very soft society and great showing. Soft society is a way to say he has these very pleasant social manners. Though you get that over-the-top, poetical, courtier style on it of soft society with the double S's. And great showing. Showing just means your outward appearance. But, of course, he can't say that. He has to use a bigger word. He keeps going. Indeed, to speak feelingly of him, he is the card or calendar of gentry. For you shall find in him the continent of what part a gentleman would see. To speak feelingly of him, kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but it might mean something like to speak from the heart about him. He is the card. Remember in the gravedigger scene where Hamlet talked about speaking by the card? It's that same idea of a compass card that you use at sea to tell where you're going. So he's describing Laertes as the model that kind of points the way for everyone to go. Or calendar. The word calendar comes from the French word for account book. So it's almost as though he is the measuring stick or the standard of gentry. Gentry is nobility or gentlemanliness. For you shall find in him the continent of what part a gentleman would see. We've heard that word continent before. Hamlet used it when he was watching the Norwegian troops march by. It means container. So Osric is describing Laertes as the person who contains what part, in other words, whatever good quality a gentleman would see, a gentleman would wish to see. And his language is just overstuffed to the point of being completely unintelligible. But in some ways, it's almost a criticism of Hamlet that he's saying to Hamlet, this guy Laertes is what a gentleman should be, unlike some people. Though, of course, he can't come out and say it. But he's taken on the wrong guy because Hamlet can match him blow for blow. He says, sir, his definement suffers no perdition in you, though I know to divide him inventorially would dozy the arithmetic of memory, and yet but yaw neither in respect of his quick sale. So it's like, kid, you think you can do courtier? I'll show you courtier. And Hamlet absolutely blows the language wide open. Sir, his definement, in other words, the way you describe him or define him, suffers no perdition in you. Suffer means to endure or undergo, and perdition is like a decrease. So he's complimenting Osric on his description of Laertes, like he doesn't lose anything at all in your description of him. Though I know to divide him inventorially, in other words, to list his good qualities one by one, like in an inventory. So to do that would dozy the arithmetic of memory. Dozy is another way to say dizzy. And the arithmetic of memory is the mind's ability to count or to reckon. So if you had to list all of his good qualities, it's almost like you'd run out of numbers. But he keeps going. And yet, but yaw neither in respect of his quick sale. This line is pretty obscure, but what I think it means is, yet but yaw neither. Yaw means to move unsteadily or to veer off course like a little boat. So anyone who's trying to describe him is but yaw neither, is sort of wobbly in respect of compared to his quick sail. So Laertes sails straight and true, and anyone who's trying to get near him is just a wobbly little boat. So he's saying to Osric, you've done a really good job of describing him, even though it's almost impossible to describe him. And then he continues with more fancy language. But in the verity of extolment, 
I take him to be a soul of great article, and his infusion of such dearth and rareness as to make true diction of him, his semblable as his mirror, and who else would trace him, his umbrage, nothing more. Wow, take that. In the verity of extolment, in other words, to praise him truly or honestly, I take him, I believe him, to be a soul of great article. Article's a fancy way of saying significance or importance. And his infusion, which is a way to say his combination of good qualities, of such dearth and rareness. Dearth means high value because it's incredibly scarce. It's sort of another way to say rareness. So his qualities are so rare as to make true diction of him. Diction is a description in words, so to describe him truly. How do you describe him truly? His semblable is his mirror. His semblable means the only one like him is his mirror. And who else would trace him? Who else would imitate him or try to be like him? His umbrage, nothing more. Umbrage is a word for shadow. So he's so amazing, the only things like him are his reflection in the mirror and his shadow on the ground. So not only has Hamlet wildly overpraised him in a way that even Osric couldn't do, but he's used such obscure language, even though it's technically correct, that he's totally dazzled Osric. Does Osric know what he's talking about? Eh, maybe not. All Osric can say in response to that is, your lordship speaks most infallibly of him. Like, I think he's a little in awe. Infallibly meaning precisely or accurately. He may also just be covering for the fact that he didn't understand a word of that. And Hamlet's going to press his luck. He says, the consonancy, sir, from the word concerns? Like, what's the purpose of all this praise? But of course, again, it's a word that's too big to understand. He asks, why do we wrap the gentleman in our more raw breath? More raw is a great phrase and almost impossible to say. But more raw breath means that our words are unrefined and unpolished and unworthy compared to his words. And I love this verb, wrap. So by talking about him, we wrap him in our undeserving words. And Osric hasn't followed any of that. He says, sir? And now Horatio joins in the fun. He says, is it not possible to understand in another tongue? In another tongue means when another person speaks to you using your own style of speaking. So you're fine talking this way to the rest of the world. But when someone talks to you this way, you don't understand it. And then he gives him a little backhanded encouragement. He says, you will do it, sir, really. Like, I believe you'll be able to understand it one of these days, really. And Hamlet keeps pressing. He says, what imports the nomination of this gentleman? Imports means signifies or means. And nomination is a fancy way to say naming or mentioning. So what does it mean that we're mentioning this guy? And Osric is still stumped. He says, of Laertes? And Horatio turns to Hamlet and says, his purse is empty already. All his golden words are spent. A purse is a way to say money bag, but in this case, it's the part of his brain where he keeps his golden words instead of his golden coins. So he has all these over-the-top fancy golden courtier words that he saved up, but now he's just spitting out one simple word at a time. It sounds like that money bag is empty. And Hamlet responds to that original question from Osric, of Laertes? And Hamlet says, of him, sir. And so Osric thinks he knows what they're talking about, and he begins to tell them the message. He says, I know you are not ignorant, but then Hamlet cuts him off. He says, I would you did, sir. He's saying, I wish you did know I wasn't ignorant. That would save me a lot of time having to explain stuff to you. Yet, in faith, if you did, it would not much approve me. In faith meaning, I swear by my faith, so it's another way of saying truly. If you did know I wasn't ignorant, it would not much approve me, meaning commend me. Like, your opinion that I'm not ignorant isn't really much of a compliment to me because it's coming from you. So he asks him to continue. He says, well, sir. And Osric picks up with what he was originally trying to say. He says, you are not ignorant of what excellence Laertes is is what he originally meant to say. But then Hamlet cuts him off again. He says, I dare not confess that, lest I should compare with him in excellence. So I don't dare to admit that I know that Laertes is excellent, lest I should compare with him, lest I should rival or measure up to him in excellence. God forbid I should be as good at something as Laertes is. He's really taking him to task here. And then he has a little diversion. He says, but to know a man well were to know himself. 
In other words, if you know someone else well, that's the same as knowing yourself by comparison with the other person. So at least if I knew his excellence, I could know mine better. And Osric, by this point, just wants to end his sentence. He says, I mean, sir, for his weapon. So what he originally wanted to say is, I know you are not ignorant of his excellence with his weapon. But Hamlet wouldn't even let him get through the full sentence. And finally, it seems like he's actually getting somewhere. He says, but in the imputation laid on him by them, in his mead, he's unfellowed. And there he goes back to the fancy language. Imputation means reputation or the estimation that other people have of him. By them in his mead probably means something like, according to those who are aware of his merit or of his skill, he's unfellowed. Unfellowed means he has no rival or no one can match him. So basically everyone says he's amazing at this. Remember when Claudius described the way that everyone was talking up how great Laertes was at fencing to make Hamlet jealous? This is another great example of this. In fact, Claudius might have sent Osric to Hamlet with the specific instruction to talk about how great Laertes was. So Osric has said he's excellent in his weapon, and so Hamlet asks, what's his weapon? And Osric replies, rapier and dagger. And these were famous dueling weapons. You would have a rapier, which is that long stabbing sword in one hand, and you'd have a dagger, which is a short sword in the other hand. So you'd use the dagger to block the other guy's rapier. And Hamlet has this amazing little joke. That's two of his weapons, but well, yeah, rapier and dagger is two weapons. Good point. But anyway... And Osric is unruffled. He says, The king, sir, hath wagered with him six Barbary horses, against the which he has imponed, as I take it, six French rapiers and poniards with their assigns as girdle, hangers, and so. So the king has made a bet with him. And what are the stakes of that bet? Six Barbary horses. Barbary horses were these famous North African horses who were incredibly prized in war. Against the which, so Laertes' bet, against the which he has imponed. Imponed is a over-the-top fancy way to say bet. It comes from the same root as pawn, as in a pawn shop. So the king's bet these horses, but Laertes has bet, as I take it, as I understand it, six French rapiers and poniards. Poniards is just a fancy way to say daggers. And not just those fancy French rapiers and daggers, but also with their assigns, along with all the stuff that goes along with a rapier and dagger. And then he gives examples of what those assigns are. It's girdle, which is a sword belt. Hangers, which are the straps that hang off the belt to hold the swords. And so, so and so on, other things like that. And he goes on to describe them even farther. He says, Three of the carriages in faith are very dear to fancy, very responsive to the hilts, most delicate carriages, and a very liberal conceit. Man, this guy's getting a little out of control. So three of the carriages, which is just another name for the hangers, the things that hold the swords on the belts, in faith, in other words, I swear by my faith, are very dear to fancy, which means they're very pleasing to creative people, maybe because of how they look. Very responsive to the hilts. It's a funny word choice. It just means that they match the hilts of the swords really well. Most delicate carriages. Delicate meaning skillfully made, though that's not how we would usually use the word. And a very liberal conceit which means they have a very lavish design. Liberal as in free spending, not as in left-leaning. Again, this guy goes incredibly over the top in everything he describes. And Hamlet is kind of stunned by this. He says, what call you the carriages? Like, what are those carriages you're talking about? And Horatio turns to him to scold him. He says, I knew you must be edified by the margent ere you had done. You must be edified by the margent. It's a way of saying that you needed notes in the margins to explain to you what he was talking about. Almost like the notes you have in an edition of Shakespeare explaining what the words are talking about. That's what Hamlet needs to understand this guy. Ere you had done, before you were done with him. And Osric explains, The carriages, sir, are the hangers. Oh. And Hamlet says, The phrase would be more germane to the matter if we could carry cannon by our sides. So the phrase, the word carriages, would be more germane to the matter. It would be more appropriate to the matter or relevant to the matter if we could carry cannon by our sides. Because actually carriages were the names you gave to those wheels that you put under cannons so you could drag them around a battlefield because they were so heavy. So he's saying, if we're going to carry cannons in our belts, it would make sense to describe them as carriages. And he begs him, I would it might be hangers till then. 
Like, I would prefer if you would just call them hangers until we can actually have those cannons in our belts. But enough of that digression, he says, but on, let's go on. Six Barbary horses against six French swords, there are signs, and three liberal conceited carriages. That's the French bet against the Danish. Notice how he goes back and picks up all of Osric's ridiculous terminology. So the bet is on the king's side, six Barbary horses, and on Laertes' side, six French swords, along with their assigns, the things that go with them, and three liberal conceited carriages, lavishly designed hangers. And that's the French bet against the Danish. And then he asks him, why is this all imponed, as you call it? He picks up his most ridiculous word and says, why have they made all these bets? And that, as you call it, is a criticism of imponed. And Osric explains, the king, sir, hath laid that in a dozen passes between yourself and him, he shall not exceed you three hits. So hath laid that, he's wagered that, or bet that, in a dozen passes between yourself and him. Passes are exchanges of swordplay, almost like rounds. If you've ever seen a fencing match, there are all those moments of on guard and now fence. And those passes end if a point is scored or if they have to break up the fencers and no point is scored. So the king's wager is that in a dozen of those rounds between Hamlet and Laertes, he shall not exceed you three hits. So obviously Laertes is better at fencing than Hamlet is, so the king has odds. Laertes has to win by three to win the bet. And Osric explains, he hath laid on twelve for nine, and it would come to immediate trial if your lordship would vouchsafe the answer. So basically he's saying the king has bet on these twelve to nine odds. And look, if you've ever actually made a bet in the real world, these aren't the real odds. It just kind of sounds right. But suffice it to say, he has odds. And it would come to immediate trial. In other words, it could come to the immediate test or resolution by actually having this match if your lordship would vouchsafe the answer. And vouchsafe the answer doesn't just mean reply, it means agree to accept this challenge. So if you agree, we can do this thing now. And of course, Hamlet takes the literal sense of answer and says, how if I answer no? So what happens if I refuse this match? But of course, that isn't the sense of answer that Osric actually meant. He says, I mean, my lord, the opposition of your person in trial. The opposition of your person in trial means you're presenting yourself for combat in this match. So it almost seems as if saying no isn't an option. And Hamlet thinks for a second and says... Sir, I will walk here in the hall. I'm just walking around here. If it please his majesty, it is the breathing time of day with me. Breathing here means exercise, not just regular breathing. So this is the time of day that I usually exercise anyway. And he says, let the foils be brought, the gentleman willing, and the king hold his purpose. I will win for him if I can. So if the foils, the fencing swords, are brought, the gentleman, in other words, Laertes, is willing to go forward with this, and the king hold his purpose, in other words, stands firm on his intention to go forward, I will win for him if I can. If not, I will gain nothing but my shame and the odd hits. If I don't win, the only thing I'll get is my shame and the odd hits, the occasional hit in fencing. And this is great news for Osric. He says, shall I re-deliver you even so? In other words, shall I deliver your message back to the king just exactly as you said it? And Hamlet responds, to this effect, sir, after what flourish your nature will. Yeah, you can deliver my message to this effect after what flourish in whatever flowery style your nature wants to use because he knows that Osric doesn't like to deliver messages simply. And Osric leaves with a suitably ridiculous over-the-top phrase, I commend my duty to your lordship, which is to say, I offer my duty to you. And Hamlet says, yours, yours, as if to say, I am yours, or I offer my duty to you. And Osric leaves. And look, Osric is often played as a sort of effeminate type. I think this is just an artifact of an old way of playing it. And it doesn't really get at what makes this character interesting, which is that he's a symptom of the way this court has developed into these sycophants and suck-ups. So what's interesting about him isn't just the flowery language, it's why he uses it, which is to get close to power. You know, go watch the people who cluster around powerful people in Washington today, or London. That's who this guy is. He's not effeminate, he's an angler. So Osric leaves and Hamlet turns to Horatio and says, 
He does well to commend it himself. There are no tongues else for his turn. So it's smart of him to commend it. And commend here, in contrast to the way that Osric used it, can mean something like praise. So he's smart to praise his duty himself. There are no tongues else for his turn. In other words, there's no other people who will fill that need. No one else is going to praise his duty because he's useless. And Horatio watches him go and says, This lapwing runs away with the shell on his head. A lapwing was a kind of bird whose young were believed to run away from the nest with these pieces of shell still stuck to them. It might be a reference back to his hat. And Hamlet jokes back, He did comply with his dug before he sucked it. Comply means to act formally or ceremoniously. So he acted that way to his dug, his mother's nipple, before he sucked it. So as soon as he was born, he was acting this way. So he sucked up literally and figuratively. And after all this ridiculousness, some of which is almost too obscure to perform today, and this kind of low comedy, finally Hamlet turns this scene and remarks on it. And he explains why he's been making fun of courtiers this whole play. He says, Thus has he and many more of the same bevy that I know the drossy age dotes on only got the tune of the time and outward habit of encounter, a kind of yesty collection which carries them through and through the most fanned and winnowed opinions and do but blow them to their trial? The bubbles are out. So thus has he and many more of the same bevy. This way he and many more of that same group or circle of people like him. So Osric isn't the only one. There's a whole group of them that I know the drossy age dotes on. The drossy age is like the frivolous or foolish times that we live in. But dross is literally the scum that forms on top when you melt down precious metals. So he's saying we're living in an era that kind of has this scum on top of it. And what does the time do? It dotes on them. In other words, it idolizes them. These are the most important people in our country. So this guy and people like him, they've only got the tune of the time. It's a cool phrase, tune of the time. You get that fun alliteration of tune and time. And you also get that sense of a melody. But tune can also mean something like the popular phrases of the time. Like they know how to repeat words that important people say, but all they have is the tune. They don't have any of the meaning of it. And what else do they have? The outward habit of encounter. That word outward is incredibly important. Habit, again, is a way to say clothing or obviously behavior. But encounter here means conversational style. So all they have is the outward skin of the way to talk. These are totally empty people. They heard something and so they just repeat it. And he goes on to describe their talk as a kind of yesty collection. Yesty like the word yeast, which is to say frothy, bubbly, superficial, just floating on the top. And it's a collection of phrases, which carries them through and through the most fanned and winnowed opinions. So as long as they can memorize those phrases, that carries them right through the most fanned and winnowed opinions. It means selective opinions. But where does it come from? When you harvest wheat, you have to separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff is all the inedible parts. That's what winnowing is. And you fan it to fan away the light, sort of papery stuff off of the wheat. So all they have to do is memorize these phrases, and the most selective opinions in the land accept them as smart. There's probably also a critique built in here. Hamlet probably sees these people with selective opinions as not really knowing what they're talking about either. And he says, and do but blow them to their trial, the bubbles are out. So imagine that scum of yeasty bubbles again. So do but blow them to their trial. If you blow on them to test them, the bubbles are out. The bubbles immediately pop because all their fancy phrases conceal the fact that they have a total lack of intellect. They're all bubbles. And this is the biggest piece of social commentary in this play. It goes back to that same image of an empty or worthless interior with a fancy exterior on the outside. Remember, Osric had no problem talking to Hamlet and Horatio in this very elevated way, but as soon as they asked him the simplest question or talked back to him using his same words, he couldn't carry on a simple conversation. And what Hamlet is saying is that the people who seem to be the intellectuals, all they did was memorize it. They have no substance. And this is the time he's living in. This is what's valued. It might be a way for Shakespeare to talk about his own time and his own country and what mattered in his court. 
Anyway, almost immediately, a new guy comes in, a lord. Sadly, he does not get as awesome a name as Osric. He says, My lord, his majesty commended him to you by young Osric, who brings back to him that you attend him in the hall. So the king conveyed his message to you through young Osric, who brings the message back to him that you attend him. In other words, you are awaiting him in the hall. He sends to know if your pleasure hold to play with Laertes, or that you will take a longer time. So now the king's sending another messenger. He sends to know, he's trying to find out, if your pleasure hold. In other words, if you still want to play with Laertes, to fence with Laertes, or that you will take longer time, like you need a little more time. Obviously, the king is eager to get this started. And Hamlet replies, I am constant to my purposes. In other words, I'm unchanged in my intentions. You know, I told him before I'd fight and I'll fight. They follow the king's pleasure. Pleasure just means wishes. But see that the Lord asked him if his pleasure hold. And he's saying that, well, my pleasure follows the king's pleasure. I'll just do whatever he wants. If his fitness speaks, mine is ready. Now or whensoever, provided I be so able as now. If his fitness speaks, speaks is a great verb, but it's a way of saying if he declares himself ready, then mine, my readiness, is ready too. Now or whenever, provided I be so able as now. You know, it can be whenever as long as I'm still in the shape I am now. And the Lord's excited to hear that. He says, the king and queen and all are coming down. And as soon as he says that, it's as though he's starting a stopwatch. Because we as an audience know, this is it. This is the final showdown. As soon as the king and queen and the court enter, there's no going back from this. And Hamlet responds very simply. He says, in happy time, which means something like how fortunate or how opportune that he's coming now. And the Lord has just one more stipulation. He says, the queen desires you to use some gentle entertainment to Laertes before you fall to play. And entertainment doesn't mean she wants him to do a puppet show. It's something like treatment. Gentle meaning gentlemanly, like courteous. So the queen basically wants him to say something nice to Laertes before you fall to play, before you start fencing. And Hamlet responds, she well instructs me. He actually agrees. In fact, he probably meant to do that himself. Remember what he just said about Laertes, how he felt bad about his treatment? And as soon as the Lord leaves, Horatio, who knows this countdown has started, turns to Hamlet and says, you will lose this wager, my lord. And Hamlet's a little offended. He says, I do not think so. Since he went into France, I have been in continual practice. This is one of the great offstage mysteries of Hamlet. When has he been practicing fencing all this time? I'd actually really like to see a production of Hamlet where in every scene Hamlet was practicing fencing with a partner. Probably not going to happen. And Hamlet argues, I shall win at the odds. So he doesn't think he's going to win the match, but he thinks he'll at least not lose by three. But then he has a weird feeling. He says, but thou wouldst not think how ill all's here about my heart. So you wouldn't believe how ill, how bad everything feels here about my heart, around my heart. So he just has a bad feeling. But he dismisses that. He says, but it is no matter. Not because he's not worried, but because he feels like what's going to happen is going to happen. And Horatio doesn't want to hear that. He says, nay, good my lord, like you should listen to your heart. Hamlet cuts him off. He says, it is but foolery, but it is such a kind of gain giving as would perhaps trouble a woman. Gain giving is a great word. It's another way to say misgiving or apprehension. So it's but foolery. It's nothing. It's foolishness. It's the kind of misgiving that would trouble a woman, not me. But Horatio doesn't want to hear that. He says, if your mind dislike anything, obey it. Dislike in the sense of distrust. So if you distrust anything that's about to happen, you should obey your mind. You should follow what it tells you to do. And not only that, he says, I will forestall their repair hither and say you are not fit. So I'm going to go forestall, which means prevent their repair hither, their coming here, and say you are not fit. I'll tell them you're not ready. Horatio is telling Hamlet, you don't have to do this right now. We can wait. Horatio probably also suspects that this is the big showdown, which could mean this is one of the last times he'll ever see Hamlet. And he's telling him, you don't have to do this. And Hamlet stops him immediately. He says, not a whit, meaning not at all. Don't delay this at all. He tells him, we defy augury. Augury is fortune telling, which in this case, he's comparing to his bad feelings, his kind of like weird psychic vibes. And notice how he uses that royal we. He could just be talking about all humans, 
but he may also be speaking as if he's the king. So we defy augury. So he's throwing away these weird fortune-telling feelings. He says, there's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. Providence is God's planning and intervention with humans. And in this case, he says, that applies even to the death of a sparrow, that God planned exactly when that tiny little living thing was going to die. And he does that for everyone. So what he's saying is, I'll die when God decides I'll die, not when I get a weird feeling in my heart. Compared to the guy who spent most of the first two-thirds of this play paralyzed by the fear of death and by how unknown it is, this is someone who's putting himself into God's hands. And he continues, If it be now, tis not to come. So if it, in other words, death, be now, if it happens now, tis not to come. It won't happen in the future. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it's not meant to happen in the future, then it will happen now. If it be not now, yet it will come. And if I don't die now, it's going to happen eventually. And then he concludes with this amazing phrase, the readiness is all. Death is not something that humans can control. All they can control is their readiness to die. And he continues, since no man has aught of what he leaves, what is to leave betimes? This is a very twisty phrase. It's a little different in a lot of the different editions. But what it means in this reading is, since no one really owns anything that they leave behind, what is it to leave betimes? Betimes meaning early. So since you can't really take anything with you when you die, what does it matter to leave a little bit early? And then he ends with this two-word phrase, which is one of the most amazing moments in the play. He says, let be, these two little syllables. And if you look back and compare it to to be or not to be, this was someone who thought he only had two choices. You could either put up with the bad stuff in life and survive, but survive miserably, or you could fight back and die. But he's found an option to to be or not to be. There's a third one. It's let be. All he can do is acknowledge it's out of his control. When it happens, it'll happen. He is oddly, almost creepily at peace at this moment. He sees his death coming, and he's looking it right in the face. And this moment is also when the entire court fills the stage. The king, the queen, Laertes, all the assembled lords and ladies... It's showtime. There is no walking back from this. And they bring with them all the swords and equipment that goes along with a fencing match. And look, this presents a real problem in productions, especially ones that want to set the play in a more modern time. It's always funny when you see a very modern, updated style of Hamlet, and then they bring on fencing swords at the end. Which is a shame, because a modern style can sometimes add a lot to the rest of the play. It's just a thing to get around, you know? And that forwardness, that downhill running of the action comes across in the very first line we hear, which is from the king. He says, come, Hamlet, come and take this hand from me. Number one, we're back in verse, so we know it's no fooling. And number two, listen to that verse. Instead of being in that standard, unstressed, stressed, iambic pentameter, it starts on a stressed syllable. Come, Hamlet. It's a stressed situation from the very beginning. And whose hand does he want Hamlet to take? Laertes' hand. And Hamlet immediately apologizes. He says, give me your pardon, sir. I have done you wrong. Notice that his line is just like Claudius's line in that it starts with a stressed syllable, give me your pardon. And he goes on, but pardoned as you are a gentleman. So he admits he's wronged him, but he begs for Laertes' pardon. Why? Because he is a gentleman. In other words, a nobleman. That there was a certain code of conduct they were expected to adhere to. Remember all that talk from Osric about what a great gentleman Laertes is? Well, part of being a gentleman here is forgiveness. This is actually very gentlemanlike of Hamlet, too, to apologize like this. And then he gets into explaining why Laertes should forgive him. And follow this, because this is suspect. He says, This presence knows, and you must needs have heard, how I am punished with a sore distraction. This presence, in other words, this whole royal assembly here, knows. And by the way, you must needs have heard. Must needs just meaning necessarily must have heard. And what does this presence know and Laertes have heard? How I am punished with a sore distraction. 
A sore distraction is another way to say like a terrible bout of insanity. But look at the verb. I am punished. It's a passive verb. It's something that happened to Hamlet. Punished is just another way to say afflicted or it's happened to me. But it's a way to totally absolve himself of responsibility for these acts he did to Laertes' father and sister. Remember back in the scene with Hamlet and Gertrude after he'd killed Polonius? He has that line about how heaven has seen it fit to punish me with this and this with me. The this he's talking about is Polonius or Polonius's body or Polonius's murder, as though it's a thing that was just done to him by heaven. There's some excuse making going on here. Remember also that Hamlet kind of wasn't really crazy. He said time and again in this play that he's just putting it on. But he goes on in this excuse. He says, what I have done that might your nature, honor, and exception roughly awake, I here proclaim was madness. So what I have done, whatever I have done, that might roughly awake, awake here meaning rouse up, your nature, honor, and exception, exception means dissatisfaction, and these are all the feelings in Laertes that have been roughly awakened by what Hamlet did, as though they were asleep and Hamlet shook them awake. He says, I here proclaim was madness. I declare here in front of all these people, it was just my insanity acting. And then the excuses go even farther. He says, was Hamlet wrong, Laertes? Never Hamlet. So now it's officially not even his fault. Hamlet would never have done what this person did. If Hamlet from himself be taken away, and when he's not himself does wrong Laertes, then Hamlet does it not. Hamlet denies it. Listen to all this third person speaking, as though he's not Hamlet. So if Hamlet from himself be taken away, from his true self in other words, and when he's not himself does wrong Laertes, then Hamlet isn't the one who does it. Hamlet denies that he does it. Who does it then? His madness. It's as though there's a separate person called Hamlet's Madness who killed Laertes' father. And then he makes an amazing leap. He says, if it be so, Hamlet is of the faction that is wronged. Faction here means the side or the party. So not only am I not responsible, I'm the one who was done wrong. And he concludes that with, his madness is poor Hamlet's enemy. His as in his own madness. So Hamlet's enemy isn't Laertes. Hamlet's enemy is Hamlet's madness. He's really setting up this straw man that both Laertes and Hamlet can be enemies of. This is an almost lawyerly section, and it's kind of a shyster lawyer, too. It's using words to remove responsibility from yourself. Now, obviously, this is public, and it's important for Hamlet to keep up the facade of madness, but it's also pretty wormy. And he ends with a public declaration. He says, Sir, in this audience, let my disclaiming from a purposed evil free me so far in your most generous thoughts that I have shot my arrow o'er the house and hurt my brother. So he says, in this audience, in other words, in front of this group of people, and maybe also the audience that's watching the play. Let my disclaiming from a purposed evil. Disclaiming from means my denial of, my rejection of. A purposed evil, in other words, an intentional evil deed. So let the fact that I'm denying that I did this on purpose free me so far in your most generous thoughts. Free as in proclaim myself innocent or exonerate myself. So far in your most generous thoughts that I have shot my arrow or the house and hurt my brother. You could expand that that I have into something like that you will think I have shot my arrow or the house. And the image here is of two kids playing on either side of a house. So neither can see what's on the other side, but he's just playing around with his bow and arrow. Kids don't do this, super dangerous. And it accidentally hurts his brother. And look, Polonius definitely died accidentally. But what Hamlet's saying here is this was a total accident. I had no intentions. You're my brother and I hurt you accidentally. And Laertes jumps in to finish his verse line. He says, I am satisfied in nature, whose motive in this case should stir me most to my revenge. You hear this word satisfied a lot when it comes to honor duels, as in, I demand satisfaction, sir. If your honor has been wronged in some way, satisfaction is when you get what's coming to you. You get some restoration of your honor. 
And he says, I am satisfied in nature. So as far as my natural feelings go for my father and my sister, I accept your apology. Whose motive in this case? Motive here means the motivating power of his natural feelings. So that power should stir me most. In other words, prompt me or urge me on to my revenge the most. But there's a catch. But in my terms of honor, I stand aloof and will no reconcilement till by some elder masters of known honor, I have a voice and precedent of peace to keep my name ungored in my terms of honor, as far as my sense of honor is concerned, because honor is public. You can't be walking around with some shame hanging over you. You have to take action. So he may accept Hamlet's apology in principle, but to repair his honor, he needs to beat Hamlet at something. So in terms of his honor, he says, I stand aloof. Aloof literally means outside or somewhere else. Here it means basically unsatisfied. And will no reconcilement. Will here isn't our modern sense of will. It literally means want or desire. Like, I don't want any reconciling with you until by some elder masters of known honor. These elder masters are basically experts in the honor code, the people who are going to decide if his honor is okay now. Of known honor. These masters are known to be honorable. So that's why they can decide the honor of other people. Until from them, I have a voice and precedent of peace. Their voice is their judgment or opinion on the matter. And the precedent of peace, in addition to being a really fun alliteration of the letter P, is some past example from history that will allow us to make peace with each other. So if they decide that this fencing game is enough, that's fine with me. And why does he need their ruling? To keep my name ungored. By name, he means reputation or honor, as in my good name. But I love this word ungored. Goring is literally being run through with a horn. Like if you're running the bulls in Pamplona or something, and one runs you through, that's goring. So here it means he wants to keep his reputation unharmed by the dishonor that would come along with not responding to what Hamlet did to his family. But the image is much more interesting than that. So there's still a standing honor question between them. In the meantime, though, he says, But till that time I do receive your offered love like love, and will not wrong it. So until then, until that ruling, I will take the love you offer as if it really is love and will not wrong it. I'm not going to disparage or reject it. And Hamlet's so excited that he jumps right into the verse line. He says, I embrace it freely, and will this brother's wager frankly play? Embrace means to accept or welcome, but it's literally a hug. He's accepting what Laertes just told him, both the fact that he accepts it personally, and that he has to do this one thing for his honor. And he uses that word brother again to refer to Laertes. And they're going to play this wager. They're going to have this match. How? Frankly. Which basically means with no ill will. So it's time to go. Give us the foils. Come on. Foils, again, are the fencing swords. And notice, again, it's that stressed give at the beginning of the line. It really propels this action forward. We've had this relatively talky, calm section, and now it's time to go. So he calls for these swords, and Laertes also wants one. He says, come, one for me. And Hamlet immediately tries to lighten the situation. He has a little joke. He says, I'll be your foil, Laertes. It's that wit again. He takes that word foil, and he uses another sense of it. A foil is this sort of thin sheet of metal that you put behind a jewel to make it shine brighter. And he explains it further. He says... In mine ignorance, your skill shall, like a star in the darkest night, stick fiery off indeed. So in mine ignorance, in other words, compared to my lack of skill in fencing, your skill shall, like a star in the darkest night, stick fiery off indeed. Stick off means like stand out, just like a bright star does in a black sky. And notice that word fiery, both like a jewel and like a star. So Hamlet's doing this little self-deprecating joke. Because I'm so bad at fencing, you're going to look even better. But Laertes, who knows how serious this fencing match really is, doesn't want to hear any joking. He says, you mock me, sir, as though he's making fun of his ability. And Hamlet says, no, by this hand. I swear by this hand of mine. I'm not mocking at all. I'm just trying to lighten the mood, buddy. Gee, why so serious? And Claudius pipes in, give them the foils, young Osric. By the way, they talk a lot about how young Osric is. 
You get the sense that maybe he's next in line for Polonius's job. He's like the hot up-and-coming young courtier. So he's going to act as something like the referee in this match. And then Claudius turns to Hamlet. He says, Cousin Hamlet, you know the wager. Remember, cousin just means close relative. They're not literally cousins. And he does. Hamlet says, very well, my lord. Yes, it's been described to me in detail by this weirdo. But he says, your grace has laid the odds on the weaker side. Laid the odds meaning you bet on the weaker side. Like you shouldn't have bet on me. More self-deprecation here. He's trying to defuse the situation. Little does he know, it's not a defusable situation. And Claudius says, I do not fear it. I've seen you both. So I'm not worried about it. I've seen you both fence. But since he is bettered, we have therefore odds. Bettered not like he's reading a lot of self-help books, but everyone thinks that he's better at this. And because of that, we have odds. Remember, Hamlet can lose by up to three and win the bet. And meanwhile, they're both choosing swords, because what happens in a duel is you get to pick your weapons. So presumably, Osric has brought out two or more swords for them to choose from. And while this is going on, Laertes is choosing his. He says, this is too heavy. Let me see another. Remember, it's very important that he picks the right sword here, because one of them is sharp. And Hamlet picks his with much less thought. He says, this likes me well. Likes meaning pleases. So this sword pleases me well. And he asks, these foils have all a length? They have all a length means they have all the same length. In other words, there's no difference between them. And Osric answers, I, my good lord. Yeah, they're all the same. Or are they? And then Claudius has to put his plan into effect. And it's important that he does this exactly right. He says in front of everyone, set me the stoops of wine upon that table. A stoop is a cup of wine. If Hamlet give the first or second hit or quit an answer of the third exchange, let all the battlements their ordinance fire. So if Hamlet gives the first or second hit, in other words, if he scores the first or second point, or quit an answer of the third exchange... Quit, we heard earlier in the scene, quit him with this arm. It means to pay back. So if he loses the first two points, he can pay back for those earlier hits by scoring one of his own in the third exchange, in the third round. Let all the battlements their ordnance fire. Ordnance is another way for saying cannons, or just guns in general. So if any of those three things happen, they should fire off the cannons. And then he says, the king shall drink to Hamlet's better breath. And in the cup and union shall he throw, richer than that which four successive kings in Denmark's crown have worn. A union is another name for a pearl. You'll see later in the scene why he doesn't just say pearl. So if Hamlet scores one of those first three points, he's going to throw a big pearl into the cup, richer, more expensive than that which four successive kings in Denmark's crown have worn. So more expensive than the one worn in the crown of four successive kings of Denmark. So a pretty big pearl. And he says in front of everyone, give me the cups. And let the kettle to the trumpet speak, the trumpet to the cannoneer without, the cannons to the heavens, the heaven to earth. Now the king drinks to Hamlet. So let the kettle, let the kettle drum speak, say this to the trumpet. And then the trumpet says that to the cannoneer without, the guy who shoots the cannons, without meaning outside, because I guess the drummer and the trumpeter are inside with the king. And when the cannoneers hear that, what happens? The cannons to the heavens. The cannons say the same thing to the heavens. How do they do that? By shooting off. The heavens say it back to earth. And what are they all saying? What's this message they're passing around in this musical game of telephone? Now the king drinks to Hamlet. Remember at the beginning of the play how they were firing off those cannons whenever the king drank? Apparently he needs loud noises to announce whenever he drinks. Weird dude. But that's what's going to happen if Hamlet scores one of the first three points. So he finishes. Come, begin. And you the judges, bear a wary eye. Bear a wary eye means keep an attentive eye on the action. They have to judge well. So it's officially time to fence. And remember, this is what we call dramatic irony. This means that we know something that someone on stage doesn't. So Claudius and Laertes are probably the only people who know that Laertes is fighting with a live, poisoned sword. Hamlet has no idea. To him, it's just a game. I mean, he's a little suspicious, but not of this. So he's taking it only relatively seriously. For Laertes and Claudius, this is absolute life and death. The stakes are very different for the different people on stage. So the fencing starts. Hamlet says, come on, sir. 
Laertes replies, come, my lord. And they start fencing. Who knows how long this lasts? It's really up to the production. Depends what their budget is for a fight choreographer. They can go up and down the set. Who knows? And at some point, Hamlet yells out, one, which is another way of saying, I think I got a hit. And Laertes protests. He says, no. And Hamlet calls out judgment. He wants the referee to rule on this. And Osric says a hit, a very palpable hit. So not only a hit, but a palpable hit, meaning a definite hit, a solid hit. And Laertes is frustrated with himself. He says, well, again, as in let's go again, another round. Do you hear, by the way, how fast these lines are? Everybody has like a syllable or two. It really cranks up the tension and the action of it. But before that can happen, remember, Hamlet scored the first point. So the king says, stay, give me drink. Stay meaning wait, don't go forward with the next round. Hamlet, this pearl is thine. Here's to thy health. So this pearl belongs to you. And then he drinks to his health. Now you may ask, isn't the cup poisoned? What's he drinking for? Has he slowly built up a resistance to mountebank unction or something? Well, the way this is usually explained is that the pearl isn't just a pearl. It's a pearl covered in poison. If you want to make it seem like the king is innocent, it's kind of brilliant to have him drink from the same cup that he's going to use to poison later. And then as soon as the pearl goes into the cup, it poisons the drink. And because the king is drinking, you get your drums, you get your trumpets, you get your cannons firing off, you get your heavens, you get your earth, the whole sequence. It's a big deal. And then importantly, he says, give him the cup. Now it's Hamlet's time to drink. Because as far as Claudius is concerned, the sooner we kill this guy, the better. Laertes has already failed once. He doesn't want to let this go too far. But Hamlet, lucky for him, says, I'll play this bout first. Set it by a while. Bout here just means round or exchange of fencing. Set it by a while. Set it to the side for a little while. And he says, come, let's go again. And they fence for a while. And then Hamlet calls out, another hit. What say you? He's calling out to Osric. I think I just got a hit. What's your ruling? But Osric doesn't even have time to respond. Laertes says, a touch, a touch. I do confess. I admit that you touched me with the sword point. And another celebration. Claudius turns to Gertrude and says, our son shall win. And of course he has to play happy, even though he's probably getting pretty annoyed at this point that his plan hasn't worked yet. And Gertrude replies back to him, he's fat and scant of breath. Scant of breath just means short of breath. It's a nice little way to make fun of Hamlet, that he's really out of shape. And she turns to him and says, here, Hamlet, take my napkin, rub thy brows. So she goes over to him with her napkin, in other words, her handkerchief, to rub thy brows, rub your forehead, you're sweating. And in many productions, she also takes the cup over to him as though she's going to give him a drink. But then there's a huge surprise. She says, the queen carouses to thy fortune, Hamlet. Carouses means drinks a toast. And in the audience, there is a massive, oh, no, don't. So she's drinking a toast to his fortune. In other words, to his continued good luck in the match. And Hamlet says, good, madam, as a sort of thank you. And Claudius at this point is screwed because he can't do anything publicly to stop her or his plan will be uncovered. And remember, she was one of the reasons why he killed his brother. This is why he did it all. And his stupid plot is turning around on him. It's all going to hell in front of his face. So all he can do is squeak out this kind of feeble, Gertrude, do not drink. He can't explain it in any way. And she says, I will, my lord. I pray you pardon me. I pray you pardon me means I ask that you allow me to do it. Sometimes this is played as sort of jokey, like she needs to ask his permission to drink. And sometimes, which is a more radical version, she suspects what's going on and she drinks to protect Hamlet. It's a much more radical reading, but it's a very interesting one. And Claudius is crushed as soon as she drinks. He has a little aside to the audience where he says, it is the poisoned cup. It is too late. Not that we need the exposition, but it's nice to see what the effect is on him. His world has just been destroyed. And maybe she offers some to Hamlet, and Hamlet says, I dare not drink yet, madam, by and by. By and by meaning soon. And remember that Gertrude offered to wipe his face. She says, come, let me wipe thy face, which is a nice excuse for them to have a little moment together. And also for Laertes and Claudius to have a little moment together. Laertes goes over to Claudius and says, my lord, I'll hit him now. Like, I promise I'll finally get him. And Claudius says, I do not think it. 
as though he doesn't believe that he'll actually hit him. But he's also a guy who's still crushed by the fact that his wife is about to die. He's starting to doubt all his plans. And then Laertes has an aside. All these asides, we're seeing what's going on inside everyone's mind here. He says to the audience, and yet it is almost against my conscience. So Laertes starts to feel bad for what he's doing, even though this is the guy who killed his father and his sister. But then Hamlet calls out. He says, come for the third, Laertes. Like, come on, it's time for the third round. You but dally. Dally means to kind of play around or take it easy on me. Like, why are you messing with me? I know you're better than this. He says, pray you pass with your best violence. Pray, I ask you to pass, to lunge at me with your best violence. This is your, like, third-rate violence. Bring me the real stuff. I am afeard you make a wanton of me. Make a wanton means toy with me as if I was incompetent or treat me like a spoiled child. Like, why are you taking it so easy on me? So he's teasing him a little bit. He's getting a little full of himself since he's won the first two points. And suddenly that conscience goes away. Laertes says, say you so? Come on. Let's go again. And they fight and fight. But then Osric yells out, nothing neither way. Nothing as in no hits either way. So it's a draw. And what happens in a draw in fencing is that you both go back to your corners and you start again. So there's no points scored. And then Laertes screams, have at you now. And this is probably extracurricular sword fighting. Have at you is a thing you say when you're about to come after someone with a weapon. In a lot of productions, Hamlet will be going back to his corner and Laertes will just come up and stab him. So not even in the match. And the worst part about this is as soon as Hamlet gets scratched, we in the audience know he's dead. We know that's it. But of course, Hamlet doesn't know that. All he knows is that Laertes hit him with a sharp sword, which is against the rules. Something is going wrong here. And they have a big fight. They go all over the stage. They probably go out of bounds. And at some point in this fight, Laertes loses his sword. And Hamlet takes it up. And he ends up wounding Laertes. So now Laertes is dead too. No one's died yet. But there's three people on stage who are definitely going to die in the next five minutes, no matter what they do. It's a show of live corpses, this one. And Claudius is freaking out because his entire plan is blowing up. He says, part them. They are incensed. Part meaning separate them. They're incensed. They're enraged. Remember, he has to look innocent in this at the end. And admittedly, he's lost Gertrude and now he's lost Laertes. But he can rest easy knowing that Hamlet is dying too. Maybe Claudius can still get out of this. But Hamlet isn't having any of that. He says, nay, come again. He's furious and he's still going after Laertes. And then suddenly the queen collapses, which is a shock to everyone but Claudius and maybe Laertes. And Osric yells out, Look to the queen there, ho! Look to meaning not just look at, but attend to her, care for her. And ho just meaning, hey, over there. He's not casting any aspersions on her virtue. And Horatio, who's been on Hamlet's side, suddenly notices they bleed on both sides. Both Hamlet and Laertes are bleeding. How is it, my lord? Like, what's going on? And Osric goes right to Laertes. He says, how is Laertes? So they both have these guys looking after them. And Laertes turns to him and says, why, as a woodcock to mine own springe, Osric, I am justly killed with mine own treachery. Remember this image from way back in Act 1, Scene 3, hours and hours ago? Polonius used this term, springes to catch woodcocks. A woodcock is a stupid bird that gets easily caught, and a springe is like a snare or a trap that you use to catch it. So Laertes, in this case, is a bird caught in his own trap, as though there's birds setting traps all around the fields. He set a trap for Hamlet, and it caught him, too. He says, I am justly killed. I am rightly killed with mine own treachery. Oh, sure, now you have regrets. And Hamlet's head is spinning. He says, how does the queen? And Claudius gives an excuse. He says, she sounds to see them bleed. Sounds is a very similar word to swoons. In other words, she faints at the blood. But Gertrude isn't having that. She says, no, no, the drink, the drink. Oh, my dear Hamlet, the drink, the drink. I am poisoned. You hear that refrain of the drink. She wants to make sure he knows exactly what happened so that he doesn't drink from it either. Now, of course, she doesn't know about the swords. And she ends on, I am poisoned. Well, there's only one poisoner in the room we know. And she dies. And that's a huge disaster for everyone involved. And Hamlet looks up and says, oh, villainy. Remember how much he likes to call Claudius a villain? And then he calls out, ho, let the door be locked. 
Oh, as in, hey there, you. Lock that door to the room. No one's coming out of here. Treachery. Seek it out. Remember, anyone who attacks the queen is a traitor. So someone in this room is a traitor. Seek it out. Let's find out who it is. And then at that same moment, Laertes collapses. And before they can start seeking it out, he says to Hamlet, It is here, Hamlet. Hamlet, thou art slain. So it is here. I'm the traitor. And by the way, Hamlet, you're dead. Notice the structure of that line, too. It has those two Hamlets in the middle. It's a very distinctive sounding line. And if you look back over the past few minutes, it's very choppy language. It's a lot of action. And this moment slows the scene down. It becomes slow. The verse becomes much more calm, much more poetic. It's as though a spotlight comes right into Laertes, and everything gets calm for a moment. He continues, No medicine in the world can do thee good. So there's no antidote, in other words, that can do thee good, that can cure you. In thee there is not half an hour of life. Hell of a thing to hear, right? You don't even have 30 minutes left to live. The treacherous instrument is in thy hand, unbated and envenomed. You hear how regular this verse is? It's just meant to calm down all the heartbeats. It's a really important thing he has to say. So the treacherous instrument, in other words, the tool by which this treachery was carried out, the sword, is in your hand. Remember they switched swords? Unbated and envenomed. Unbated meaning unblunted because fencing swords were normally dulled for safety and this one wasn't. And envenomed, in other words, covered with poison. The foul practice hath turned itself on me. A practice is like a scheme or a plot. And he describes it as foul, as evil, as disgusting. And it's turned itself on me. Lo, here I lie, never to rise again. Lo is a way of saying, look, behold, look at me. Here I lie, never to rise again. And see how lie and rise are opposites? I'm lying down, I'll never get up again. Thy mother's poisoned, I can no more. The king, the king's to blame. And as he's dying, his language falls apart. He can only do these half lines. Your mother's poisoned, I can no more. In other words, I can't continue anymore. And he has one more thing to say. The king, the king's to blame. He wants to make sure Hamlet knows who planned all of this. And once he hears those words, Hamlet says, The point envenomed too. Like, oh, the sword's poisoned? Then venom to thy work. Well, if it's poisoned, I'm going to use it. Do what you do, poison. Poison people. And Hamlet finally does what you've been waiting for hours and hours to see him do. He stabs the king. You happy now? Here's your glamorous revenge, world. And as soon as that happens, everyone there yells out, Treason! Treason! Because attacking the king is treason. It's the treasoniest thing you can treason. This, by the way, is exactly what would have happened if Hamlet had killed Claudius earlier. Everyone would have yelled out treason, and they would have thrown him in jail or even just executed him on the spot. And Claudius, who knows he's dying, calls out, Oh, yet defend me, friends! I am but hurt! Yet means still. I am but hurt. I am only hurt. Even though we know that's not true, you're not just hurt. You're dying. But Hamlet wants to make sure he dies a little faster. He says, Hear, thou incestuous, murderous, damned Dane, drink off this potion. And remember, throughout the play, Hamlet has been giving these lists of terrible things that Claudius is. And here's another list. Incestuous, murderous, damned. He finally gets to say that to the guy's face. This is what he's been waiting for the whole play. Dane is in the King of Denmark. Drink off this potion. The potion is a drink, but especially the poisoned one. And he pours the rest of the drink down his throat. Kill him even faster. Sometimes Hamlet will even keep stabbing him here. And he has one more question. He says, is thy union here? Union obviously is that name for Pearl, but there's a little bit of a pun, because even in serious moments, Hamlet loves his puns. Union can also mean marriage. So you just poisoned your wife. Is your marriage here? And he ends with, follow my mother. In other words, follow her to death. And just like Laertes, Hamlet's verse is becoming choppier and choppier. It's turning into half lines. And the king dies. At long last, the king is dead. Good news, guys. For another two minutes, Hamlet is officially the king of Denmark. So great. And Laertes sees this, death number two of four, and says, He is justly served. Served meaning punished, or even paid back. 
Why? It is a poison tempered by himself. Tempered meaning mixed. And look, the king may not actually have mixed it, but he basically did by putting the plot together. So he deserved it because he put it all together himself. And he's about to die, and he has one last request. He says, Exchange forgiveness with me, noble Hamlet. Mine and my father's death come not upon thee, nor thine on me. So he wants them both to forgive each other. He says, Mine and my father's death, the death of both me and my father, because remember, Hamlet will have killed both Polonius and Laertes. So Laertes is saying, My death and my father's death come not upon thee, are not blamed on you, nor thine on me. So what forgiveness does he want? He wants Hamlet to absolve him from guilt for killing Hamlet. Because remember, if you die without this forgiveness, your soul is in a bad place. And really, the production gets to decide whether Hamlet gives this forgiveness or not. Because almost immediately after saying this, Laertes dies. Death number three of four. And Hamlet says, although maybe a few seconds too late, Heaven make thee free of it, meaning absolved from guilt. And it's interesting that he doesn't say, I forgive you. He asks Heaven to forgive him, as though maybe he can't forgive him. And then we get some more of these half lines, these choppy sentences of people who are dying. He says, I follow thee. Remember, like, follow my mother? I'm going to follow you to death. I'm going to be dead in a minute. He says to Horatio, I am dead, Horatio. And then he turns to his mother's body and says, wretched queen, adieu, goodbye. And that choice of the word wretched is really interesting. It's him admitting that she's really suffered, that she's been torn apart by this. And obviously she's died from it. And it starts to really sink into Hamlet that he's about to die. What do you do when you know you're about to die? It's not an experience most people have. And immediately he turns out to everyone listening, not just the people in the room, but the people in the audience, both audiences in that sense. He says, you that look pale and tremble at this chance that are but mutes or audience to this act, had I but time as this fell sergeant death is strict in his arrest, oh, I could tell you, but let it be. So you, those of you that look pale and tremble at this chance, chance here meaning event, something that's chanced to happen, those of you that are only mutes or audience, And these are more acting metaphors. Remember how many of these we've had in the play? Mutes is basically a way of saying extras. They're actors on stage with no lines. Or audience, literally the audience, which means people listening. But if you're in the theater, it means the audience to this act. Those of you who watched it and listened. And what does he say to them? Had I but time? If I only had the time. If I only had the time left. And then this parenthetical, as this fell sergeant death is strict in his arrest. A sergeant is an arresting officer, and fell here means terrible or vicious. So Hamlet spent this whole play trying to come to terms with death, and he describes him finally here as a sort of terrible arresting officer who you can't avoid. He's strict in his arrest. He always shows up on time, and you can't get out of it. So if I just had that little bit of time, oh, I could tell you he has all these things to get out before he dies. And then he stops himself. He says, but let it be. And it's the same phrase again. Remember earlier in the scene, before any of this fencing started, we had that moment of let be, like we just have to kind of leave this up to God. He decides not to say the thing he was going to say. He says to Horatio, Horatio, I am dead. Thou livest. So I'm dying, but you're still alive. Report me and my cause aright to the unsatisfied. And finally, we know what Horatio is doing in this play. His job of exposition isn't over yet. His job is to report me and my cause, my cause of revenge, aright, in other words, accurately, to the unsatisfied. The unsatisfied here are people who will want an explanation, people who don't know the facts yet. Remember, this is all happening inside the castle. When the news gets out, there's going to be a huge scandal. And it's hugely important to Hamlet that someone is telling his side of the story. Because otherwise, what is Hamlet going to be? He's going to be some crazy kid who killed the king. No one else is there to tell his story. But Horatio isn't hearing that. He says, never believe it. 
I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. So he says, you're alive. Tell my story. And Horatio refuses. He says, don't believe that I'll do it. I'm more an antique Roman. In other words, an ancient Roman than I am a Dane. And why a Roman? Because Romans were known for committing suicide to defend their honor rather than die at an enemy's hands. This happens all throughout Julius Caesar, if you've read that. So if you're living at the time this play is written, what the word Roman means to you is person who values honor above everything so much that they'll kill themselves for it. And he says, here's yet some liquor left. Liquor here just being the word for liquid. Like there's a little left in the cup. I can kill myself with it. And you also get those repeated L sounds of liquor left. But before he can do that, Hamlet interrupts his verse line and says, as thou art a man, give me the cup. So if you're really a man, give me that cup. Let go. By heaven, I'll have it. I'll have it. Like, I'll have it from you. I'll get it back from you. For a guy who's poisoned and dying, Hamlet's surprisingly strong. Or maybe Horatio's just kind of a weakling. So he gets the cup away from him because he's got a more important job for him than following him to death. He says, Oh, good Horatio, what a wounded name. Things standing thus unknown shall live behind me. He's obsessed with his legacy here. What a wounded name. Name being another way to say reputation. And then this parenthetical things standing thus unknown. Standing means remaining unknown to the rest of the world because he just killed the king. So maybe everyone's going to think he was just this traitor. So what a wounded reputation shall live behind me. When Hamlet dies, he's going to have a bad reputation still alive in the world after him. And that's a really cool choice of word, wounded. Just like he is, his name is wounded. And here's his mission for Horatio. If thou didst ever hold me in thy heart, absent thee from felicity a while, and in this harsh world draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. So if you ever held me, if you ever kept me in your heart as a friend, and hear those repeated H sounds of hold me in thy heart. So if I was ever your friend, absent thee from felicity a while. It's a beautiful sounding line. Absent means remove yourself from or keep away from felicity, which means joy or happiness. So stay sad for a while. And in this harsh world, draw thy breath in pain. It's another one of those all single syllables lines because he wants to be as clear and simple as he possibly can. So in this harsh, difficult world, draw thy breath, take in breath, in pain, probably the pain of his bad feelings, to tell my story. And why is he breathing in? Because he's going to breathe out Hamlet's story. That's what's really important to him, is that his story be carried on, that the world not think he was a traitor, but that he did something good. And after all, this is what everyone wants. I think about this all the time. How will I be remembered? Will I be remembered as what I was? Or will some story be told about me that won't get my full essence? And then we hear a noise off stage. It's an incredible moment because you think the play's over, right? The hero's about to die. Hamlet says, what warlike noise is this? Sometimes you'll hear marching. Sometimes you'll even hear guns or the voice of soldiers or horses. That's why it's warlike. And Osric comes in to deliver the message. He says, Young Fortinbras, with conquest come from Poland, to the ambassadors of England gives this warlike volley. I'll bet you were wondering why we cared about Fortinbras this whole play. He kept being mentioned, he showed up at one point, you're like, who cares about the Prince of Norway? This is about the Prince of Denmark. Actually, this is why you care. And look, if you know this play, you know Fortinbras shows up, but imagine you didn't know this play. It's kind of an amazing turn. So young Fortinbras, with conquest, come from Poland, so he's come back from Poland, having conquered it, to the ambassadors of England gives this warlike volley. Of all, he's just a shooting off of weapons. And he uses the word warlike to respond to Hamlet's use of warlike. So apparently Fortinbras is right outside the castle, and he fires off his weapons to greet who? The ambassadors of England. England? Remember those guys? And Hamlet just has time to get out a few words when he hears this. He says, Oh, I die, Horatio. The potent poison quite o'ercrows my spirit. Just to remind you, I'm dying. The potent poison. There's that strong alliteration of P sounds. Quite o'ercrows my spirit. It's a funny verb to choose here. Or crows means triumphs over, but it comes from cockfighting because you're fighting two roosters. So instead of one beating the other, you say that one overcrows the other. 
And in this case, the winning rooster is the poison over his spirit. He says, I cannot live to hear the news from England, but I do prophesy the election lights on Fortinbras. So I won't survive to hear what the English ambassadors say, but I do prophesy, in other words, I foresee happening in the future, that the election, the election is when they choose the king of Denmark, not the election among everybody, but the lords have to decide and officially declare someone king. It lights, which is short for alights, which means comes to rest or falls. It's like a bird landing on a rock. It falls on Fortinbras. And not only does he think he's going to become the king, he says, he has my dying voice. Voice here meaning more than just the physical voice, it means his support. So as I'm dying, I support this guy as the successor to the kingship. And he keeps talking. He says, so tell him with the occurrence more and less which have solicited, so tell him, tell this to Fortinbras, along with the occurrence, in other words, the things that occurred, the events, more and less, both the more important and the less important ones, he wants to have every detail mentioned, which have solicited. Solicited means incited or urged. But it's an active verb. It's not the end of a sentence. He may be saying that these are the events that caused this disaster to happen, but he doesn't get through the sentence. He knows it's over. And Hamlet is a huge part. He has thousands of lines. I think it's actually the biggest part Shakespeare ever wrote. And finally, this guy who spent so much time trying to figure things out in words runs out of words, and he just stops the sentence midway through and says, the rest is silence, which is a very famous line, but it's also a very mysterious line. The rest of this sentence is silence. The rest of my life is silence. The rest of the afterlife is silence. It's a great phrase because it can mean so many different things. So as a reader or a performer, you get to choose what he means there. And that's it. He dies. That's the end of Hamlet. And the only one left to speak is Horatio. He says, now cracks a noble heart. Now a noble heart breaks into pieces. Good night, sweet prince. And flights of angels sing me to thy rest. Flights is another way of saying flocks, almost like giant bird-like clouds of angels. He's calling for them to sing Hamlet to his rest. And look, it's a pun. The rest is silence. Sing thee to thy rest. Rest here is like his eternal rest. Because look, we don't know where Hamlet's going. Hamlet doesn't know where he's going either. Maybe he's going nowhere. Maybe he's going to hell. And Horatio just prays for him to go to heaven. Look, this is an incredibly famous line, but it's also personal. And there's also a little bit of a joke in it. Remember, spoken by one human character to another human character. And then we hear drums and marching. And Horatio looks up and says, why does the drum come hither? Hither meaning to here, to this room. And into the room marches Fortinbras and all the guys who come along with him, and the ambassadors from England. And apparently they have drums. And Fortinbras asks, where is this sight? I guess he's heard about what happened inside the castle. He wants to see it for himself. And Horatio asks him, what is it you will see? In other words, what is it you want to see? He asks to see this sight. So Horatio says, well, what do you want to see? If aught of woe or wonder, cease your search. If aught, if anything, of woe or wonder. Wonder can mean amazement, but it can also mean disaster. And woe means sadness. Cease your search. Stop searching. It's here. This is also a very consciously poetic line. You get the woe and wonder and the cease and search. You get a double alliteration. And Fortinbras sees it and he says, This quarry cries on havoc. Quarry is a hunting term. It means a heap of bodies. Like if you catch a whole bunch of birds or animals, you pile up their bodies and that's a quarry. Cries on, in other words, announces havoc. Havoc being a sort of way to say massacre. In war, if you yell out havoc, it's a signal to pillage or to attack. So this pile of bodies announces that there's been a massacre. Well, yeah, buddy. And then he says, Oh, proud death, what feast is toward in thine eternal cell that thou so many princes at a shot so bloodily hath struck? He's talking actually to death. And not just death, proud death. Proud in the sense that he can't be defeated. And he likes to show how he can't be defeated. What feast is toward? Toward meaning about to take place or being prepared in thine eternal cell. Cell meaning his chamber, his quarters. So it's as though death is having a barbecue at his house. 
So Fortinbras is asking Death, what meal's about to start at your house that there's so many princes at a shot? A shot here means like one blow or one stroke. And princes here isn't just princes, it's royal people. So bloodily has struck. So you've killed all these royals in one blow, as though you were getting ready to feed on them. And then the English ambassador pipes up. That guy's here. He says, the sight is dismal. The word dismal comes from the Latin word for evil days. So it's almost a way to say disastrous. And he adds, and our affairs from England come too late. So he's here to deliver a message. The ears are senseless that should give us hearing to tell him his commandment is fulfilled, that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. The ears are senseless, in other words, they're unable to sense sound, that should give us hearing. Whose ears are they? The king's ears. And notice how we've turned from those images of sight and seeing to ears and hearing. And what should the king's ears have heard? To tell him his commandment is fulfilled. In other words, his order has been carried out. And what order? That Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Well, I guess it was nice of the English to send a message saying it happened. So if the king is dead, the guy asks, where should we have our thanks? Who should we receive our thanks from for carrying out his order? Well, this is awkward. And Horatio has to tell him, not from his mouth had it the ability of life to thank you. So you wouldn't get those thanks from Claudius's mouth, even if it had life to thank you for it. Now we've gone to mouths and talking. And why? Because he never gave commandment for their death. Remember, it was Hamlet's command that the English execute Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Sorry you came all this way, English ambassador. But now Horatio has to make sure that Hamlet's last command is carried out. He says, But since so jump upon this bloody question, you from the Polack Wars and you from England are here arrived, give order that these bodies high on a stage be placed to the view. But since so jump upon, jump here means exactly or precisely, and question means the dispute or the argument that took place here. You are here arrived, so you got here just exactly right after this argument happened that caused all this death. And where are they arrived from? You from the Polack Wars. Fortinbras has come from the wars in Poland, and you from England, the ambassador from England. So since you're here, give order that these bodies high on a stage be placed to the view. Look how he reorders these words. It should probably be, give order that these bodies be placed to the view high on a stage, or be placed high on a stage to the view. But instead he engineers the language so that that stressed word high is at the beginning of the line and really hits. So he's telling Fortinbras to give an order that these bodies be placed high on a stage. Stage here isn't a literal stage, it's just a platform in public. But of course no theater reference in this play goes unnoticed. So a stage can actually be a stage too. And he wants them to be placed to the view. In other words, to be viewed by everyone. There's that seeing image again. So he wants the bodies to be displayed publicly. And why? And let me speak to the yet unknowing world how these things came about. Everyone's going to come to see the bodies, and Horatio is going to speak to the world, which is yet unknowing, which still doesn't know what happened, how these things came about. You know, what caused this death? So shall you hear of carnal, bloody, and unnatural acts, of accidental judgments, casual slaughters, of deaths put on by cunning and forced cause. And in this upshot, purposes mistook fallen on the inventor's heads. So when he speaks to the world, they're going to hear of carnal, bloody, and unnatural acts. Carnal being another way to say murderous. So maybe that's a reference to Claudius's murder of his brother. Especially that word unnatural. And what else will they hear about? Of accidental judgments, casual slaughters. Judgments is another way to say the killings here. And casual slaughters isn't like, oops, I stabbed you. It's casual in the sense that they happened by chance. It's almost another way of saying accidental. And this seems like a pretty direct reference to Polonius and Ophelia's deaths. Because they certainly weren't on purpose. What else will you hear about? Of deaths put on by cunning and forced cause. Put on means provoked. You could almost say brought on by cunning and forced cause. Forced means plotted or contrived. This seems like a pretty direct reference to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It's his way of saying they brought it on themselves because they were always plotting. 
And in this upshot, upshot being the word for conclusion, it literally comes from archery. It's the final shootout that determines the winner after you've had many rounds. That's the upshot. So in this final showdown, purposes mistook. Purposes being plans or intentions. And why were they mistook? Because they weren't carried out as they were intended. It's that same word as mistaken. So these mistook purposes were fallen on the inventor's heads. Not inventors like Thomas Edison, but the person who came up with the plot in the first place. And that seems like a pretty direct reference to Claudius and Laertes. So you have all the deaths in the play really laid out. All what, eight of them? Remember, this is the thing he promised he would tell the world from Hamlet. What really went on. He says, all this can I truly deliver. Deliver in the sense of report to the world. And Fortinbras jumps right into his line. He says, let us haste to hear it and call the noblest to the audience. Let us haste, let's hurry up and be quick to hear it and call the noblest. Invite the highest ranking people to the audience to be listeners to what happened. So everybody needs to hear this. So good, he's going to go along with the plan. And then he says, for me, with sorrow, I embrace my fortune. So as for me, since no one asked, I embrace, in other words, I accept my fortune, which may even be a way of saying good luck here. Fortune would seem like a good thing here, but he says that he's accepting it with sorrow because of all the death involved. He says, I have some rights of memory in this kingdom, which now to claim my vantage doth invite me. I have some rights of memory. Of memory means that are remembered by many in this kingdom. So he has some rights to this land that some people in this kingdom remember. This might be a reference to his father. Remember, he started the playoff trying to get the lands back that his father lost to Hamlet's father. And he's gotten them now. He says, I have some rights here, which now to claim my vantage doth invite me. Vantage being like he has an advantageous position, you know, because the entire royal family is dead. So his great position invites him to claim those rights now. And Horatio pipes up and says, of that I shall have also cause to speak, and from his mouth whose voice will draw on more. So it's funny you should mention taking over here, because I have some cause to speak about that too. And I'm going to be speaking from his mouth, in other words, from Hamlet's mouth, whose voice will draw on more. Draw on more means attract other supporters for Fortinbras. Remember how Hamlet talked about how Fortinbras had his dying voice? Well, that's the voice that Horatio is talking about here. So if other people hear that Hamlet supported Fortinbras, they're going to support him too. But he says, but let this same be presently performed, even while men's minds are wild, lest more mischance on plots and errors happen. So let this same thing, in other words, the display of bodies and the speech, including that Hamlet supported Fortinbras, be presently performed, be immediately performed, performed at once. You also get that cool alliteration of presently and performed. Even while men's minds are wild, that's a cool image, that because so little is known about what really happened inside this castle, men's minds are wild. They're making up all kinds of stories about what happened. So it's really important that Horatio get the truth out there. Why? Lest more mischance on plots and errors happen. Mischance is another word for calamity or disaster. On plots and errors, on top of, in addition to, these plots and errors that already happened. So he doesn't want more things to go wrong before the truth is known. And Fortinbras agrees. He says, let four captains bear Hamlet like a soldier to the stage. So let those four captains carry Hamlet as if he was a soldier to the stage, to this platform. Why? For he was likely, had he been put on, to have proved most royally, and for his passage, the soldiers' music and the rights of war speak loudly for him. He was likely, had he been put on. Put on here means tested by becoming king, essentially. So if he had become king, it was likely he would have proved, in other words, been proven to be very royal. So he would have been put on, in other words, tested, and he would have proved, in other words, proved himself. And for his passage, here being death, the passage to the next world, the soldier's music and the rights of war speak loudly for him. So that's why Fortinbras wants Hamlet carried out like a dead soldier, because as he's passing on to the afterlife, he wants the soldier's music, the music of war, and the rights of war to speak loudly for him, as though to argue his case with God. 
And notice that that's a short line. So there's almost an implied momentary pause. Or maybe it's the pause while they pick up Hamlet and take him out. And then Fortinbras gives another order. He says, take up the bodies. Take up all these dead bodies here. And finally, he concludes the scene and the play with one last rhyming couplet. He says, such a sight as this becomes the field, but here shows much amiss. Such a sight. Remember, he started the scene with where is this sight? And you also get that alliteration of such and sight. So a sight like this one becomes the field. It's appropriate to the field of battle. You know, on a battlefield, you expect piles of dead bodies, but maybe not in the throne room of Denmark. But here, but here in this throne room, shows much amiss. Shows not in our modern sense, but it appears very amiss, very wrong. And he gives one last order. Go bid the soldiers shoot. Go tell the soldiers to shoot off a volley. A kind of salute to the dead. And so the play ends with these shots being set off and all these dead bodies being carried out. And that's the end of the tragedy of Hamlet. And look, a lot of people have weighed in over the years on what exactly the tragedy of Hamlet is. There's that famous moment at the beginning of Laurence Olivier's film of Hamlet where he describes it as the tragedy of a man who could not make up his mind. Personally, I think that's bananas. I think you see the tragedy in this last moment. You see a country utterly destroyed. The entire royal family is dead. A whole bunch of lords are dead. And they've been invaded by a foreign power who wanted to get back at them all these years anyway. For all intents and purposes, the country is no more. And why? because of revenge. Claudius thought it would be simple to just kill his brother and take the throne. You know, the ghost gave Hamlet this apparently simple task to just kill Claudius. But actually, revenge isn't that simple. If you've spent a lot of time watching these revenge tragedies, as a lot of this audience had done, you know, you get to cheer when the hero gets his revenge. And maybe he dies at the end, but that's about it. And instead, Shakespeare messes with us for wanting that revenge. He says, you want revenge? Here's what happens when you want revenge. You get eight dead bodies. You lose your country. So to me personally, Hamlet's tragedy isn't that he can't take revenge, it's that he has to take revenge. This is a guy who isn't really well suited for it. He doesn't start the play as a killer. He's a good enough guy. He's a deep thinker. But the ghost gives him an impossible task, and it ends like these tasks always have to, with collateral damage. So there's all this writing and thinking that goes on about why Hamlet delays, and to me at least, Hamlet delays because he knows it's going to end up something like this. There's no good way to get revenge. Hamlet becomes a worse person. He has to be really well acquainted with death by the end of this play. Lots of well-meaning people get dragged into it. This apparently healthy kingdom turns out to be rotten on the inside, and it falls to pieces. So that's the tragedy I see. And this is the end of Clear Shakespeare Hamlet. And thanks so much for making it all the way through with me. Just remember, I've tried to give you the meanings of these words as best I can. There may be one of those meanings that you disagree with, which is totally cool. I'd be really interested in what your alternative reading is. Remember also that there are so many different texts of Hamlet, and so it's possible you're using a different one which has different words entirely. Great. Pick what works best for you. Pick what works best for you. After all, nobody knows what the real one is. There's no manuscript in Shakespeare's handwriting. What I've done here is given you a few of my own personal opinions, and I fully expect you to argue with them. In fact, I hope you do. Because now, as a great man once said, the power is yours. All I've given you here is a very close look at the language to make it as clear to you as possible. But right now, it's still just words on a page. If you're going to bring it alive, you need to make it intensely personal. You need to have personal opinions about these words. Very, very specific opinions based on very specific words. Again, being general is the absolute enemy. And by the way, this all goes double if you're working to produce a production of the play. Because you have to decide how you would personally say these words in these particular moments. Now, you want to reshuffle the scenes or remove characters or, I don't know, cast only women or set it on the moon or something? Do it. Go with God. But one condition, everything these characters say has to be deeply rooted in this language. 
No swaths of meaningless recitation, no explaining dry concepts on stage. Make these words profoundly yours, and then speak them as though they are the only words you can speak at that moment. Now, this podcast has been all about what these people are saying and how they're saying it, but that's really just a starting point. You need to go digging now for the whys, the hidden motivations underneath that language. Find a way to speak these words that sounds like you. Find your own weird reading or personal interpretation, because anything that's grounded both in the text and in you can never be wrong. It's going to feel real and true. Now, anything that's general and vague, anything that's based on someone else's idea of 400 years of tradition, well, that's just going to be dead and fake and a waste of everyone's time. That's, I think, why people think this is boring, because it doesn't feel like it belongs to them personally. Whoever you are, a teenage kid in West Philadelphia, a retired machinist in Texas, a professor in India, an actor in South Africa, whoever you are, this can belong to you. But you have to meet its opinion with your opinion. All literature is just a chemical reaction. The author puts these words out into the world, but the reaction is only complete when a reader or an actor or an audience reads or hears those words. Great works are only great when the reader sees a moment or a word and says, oh my god, I recognize that feeling in myself. Otherwise, why bother even doing these plays? So I hope that Clear Shakespeare has cleared away some of those barriers to reading Shakespeare's plays as you would any other book or play. It may not be possible, I don't know. But you can't say I didn't try. One last pitch. It takes hundreds of hours of my time to make one of these things. I'm going to keep going as much as I can. The biggest thing you can do to help is to kick in a few bucks. Because the more people who give and the more they give, the faster I can make these things. I realize there's 36 or 37 or 38 of these plays, and I want to do podcasts for all of them. So if you think what I'm doing here is worthwhile, I'd very much appreciate you going to clearshakespeare.com support and ponying up a little cash to make it possible. Thanks so much for listening.